everybody and welcome to Volume 4, Issue 200 of the Cane and Rinse podcast. You can't play along with Cane and Rinse Volume 4, but you can start thinking about playing along with Volume 5 coming your way later this year, uh, before Christmas, some point late November, maybe mid-late November. We're going to have a few weeks off, but we'll be back and we haven't yet uh, announced or even really discussed uh, the games we'll be covering in the next 50 issues over the next year of the podcast. Other than we know we are going to tackle the Legend of Zelda series from the start to the end, whatever the end is. By the time we get to the end, there might be another couple of games down the line. (laughs) Don't worry, non-Zelda fans. Uh, There'll only be one uh, Zelda podcast a month maximum, possibly left. Uh, possibly less, I should say. Uh, but head to canorince.com for uh, the usual articles and features, the occasional review, links to our friendly and intelligent forum, our Facebook page and the YouTube channel. Do remember, we do have a, a shop where you can support us financially in a very small uh, way by uh, by purchasing Kane and Rince t-shirts and bags. Most of the money goes to Spreadshirt, of course, but uh, we get a little bit and you get to look good in the process. Please also remember to check out our video games music podcast, Sound of Play. And as always, we always ask you, review, rate and subscribe to us on iTunes and uh, or via whatever else uh, you get your podcast through. That's wicked. Thanks. (laughs) Now joining me, Leon, Russian Commandant Cox, in this issue, we have Brian Trevelyan Taran. Hello. Darren, Siberian Special Forces Gargette. He's camouflage in the complex level. And Tony Oddjob Atkins. Is that a height joke? <laughs> uh, it, was, it, it wasn't meant to be, but now, now you come to mention it. Mm. We'll talk Oddjob later, of course. So, GoldenEye 007. Uh, this is the game that we are focusing on. If we have time, we'll talk a little bit about its legacy, but obviously uh, the games that came after it could warrant their own podcasts in future. First thing I wanted to mention was the film. This is a film tie-in, and of course this was a sort of Bond reboot. This was the after a bit of a gap, um, the new Bond, Pierce Brosnan. Uh, the film came out in 1995, directed by Martin Campbell, and uh, this was the first Bond, as I understand it, that wasn't properly based on Ian Fleming's fiction. Goldeneye mm. comes from the name of his house, um, so this was actually a, a kind of scripted film that wasn't based on a Fleming short story or anything like that. Uh, Electric Crocosaurus is our first correspondent for this podcast, and he says, I'd just like to point out what a great job Rare did in creating a substantial game campaign from a film with only a handful of action scenes. Goldeneye, the movie, is one of the better Bond films, uh, but it doesn't feature wall-to-wall action enough to suggest a first-person shooter. Yet clever detours, uh, visiting Sevenaya in a pre-complete state, bulking up the chase for the stealth helicopter in Frigate, mean that Rare expand the film's story without feeling gratuitous. Bond has never been a balls-out action character in the vein of Schwarzenegger or Stallone, which is why allowing the player to approach certain situations stealthily makes so much sense. Indeed, my least favourite levels are those where you're funnelled down corridors and forced to mow down countless bad guys. Yet the peerless facility remains a brilliant piece of level design because of the multiple options available. Thanks for that. So, of course, we know this is by Rare. Now, the, the, the development of this game is well documented and storied. There's a lot of stuff you can find out there. So we won't, you know, for worrying about running out of time, actually uh, talking about our own experiences. We won't go in too deep. But suffice to say that uh, this was developed by a core team of just eight people led by Martin Hollis. 
Uh, there were three composers, uh, one of whom, Robin Beanand, only worked on one piece of music, which is the uh, Muzak that you hear in the lift a couple of times. So the team is actually really ten people, um, which is extraordinary by today's standards. And the project lasted uh, two and two-third years, um, which is uh, which was a long time back then. And also, well, it's, it's still a long time, really, if you think about, you know, the sort of two, annual or two-yearly cycle. Um, and it was unusual in that Rare gave Martin Hollis uh, the lead on the project simply because he said he wanted to do it uh, <laughs> up to that point. He'd only worked on Killer Instinct as a second programmer. So a second programmer on a 2D fighting game became the lead on a what ended up being a first-person polygon shooter. Uh, so David Doak was the writer of the game. But, of course, we should credit uh, Ian Fleming and uh, Michael France, who wrote the story for the film, of which uh, you know the game is is quite closely based on uh, with as as our correspondent mentioned there crocosaurus uh, a few changes uh, so yes graham norgate and grant kirkhope were the main composers on the game but you can't ignore the fact that uh, monty norman's famous theme uh, is sort of uh, remixed and redeployed throughout um, also john barry of course who famously mixed uh, the theme for dr no and worked on i think like a dozen bond films uh, his influence is very much heard throughout with the orchestration and so on. But it was actually uh, Eric Serra and John Altman who wrote the music for uh, GoldenEye. Serra was the one who actually um, oversaw the sort of remixing, the modernisation of the Bond theme for, for that. But that was 20 years ago now. Obviously, a lot of Bond music has, has passed under the bridge since then. We'll talk about our feelings on the soundtrack later. So, yeah, the game came out August 1997. Uh, there were some slight differences. It arrived in Japan by first by a couple of days. Uh, America and the UK followed. There were a couple of slight differences, but thankfully, because the game was developed in the UK, the PAL version was not the usual uh, butchered product. Um, in fact, in some ways, it's slightly better because it's actually a slightly higher resolution picture because there are more vertical, uh, more horizontal, yeah, more vertical mm. lines. I think actually right. seeing that interview with Martin Harris, he he's quite scathing of the NTSC format, right. preferring the PAL format over the NTSC format purely for image yeah. density it's it's quite interesting to hear a developer turn towards that mm. rather than the other and the power version's also got a lot of bug fixes you know for better or for worse whether you mm. like the you know the, the kind of the debug nature of the ntsc version because it's, it's just full of stuff that you wouldn't find in the power version so the power version is better but i love my ntsc version just because it's full of crazy secrets that you'd never find unless you were digging for them yeah, and it, it does run ever so slightly faster on NTSC, but it also uh, suffers from worse frame drops, I believe. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it does. Uh, and the reviews at the time were pretty spectacular. Uh, the average on game rankings, obviously, the, these resources started more recently, but, um, but it averages 94.7%. Won a lot of awards. Um, it was the first uh, game to win the, the game BAFTA. Uh, such as it was then um it appeared in multiple reader voted uh, top 100s uh, in all time uh, all time top 100s at number one in fact in a cmvg uh, cmvg list in 2000 um and since then i think it's fair to say it has um you know tailed away and we'll talk about why that might be it sold really really well over a very long period of time uh, according to martin hollis it didn't sort of come out the blocks with a massive amount of sales although i'm sure it did still sell more at the front end but um, according to their their rental records, it just it was just 
just a constant like for the next however many years the n64 is still around so about three or four years um it ended up selling eight million copies and by way of context that puts it in uh, as the third best-selling uh, n64 game um but when you consider that it's between mario kart 64 and above the legend of zelda ocarina of time that's pretty extraordinary only super mario 64 uh tops by all three of those. million that's not a lot yeah no absolutely um so taking ourselves back now personal histories starting with brian uh were you the sort of person to rush out and buy a game like this at the start or have you caught up with this in more recent times no no well i was uh about 15 i think when it came out uh so a f- my first exposure to it was a friend of mine who, who he lived around the corner from me and he got a, a us uh, n64 when it came out and had all the games he was very very lucky very spoiled mm. um and he yeah he got a copy um I, I I can't remember the timing exactly on it, but it was certainly a few months before it was out over here. Um, or so, sorry, a few months before I actually got a copy myself. It was mm. summertime, summer '97, wasn't it? Um, and I remember losing hours, days, uh, to sitting in his darkened bedroom uh, playing multiplayer on, on the uh, on the N64. Uh, pretty much that game and um, Mario Kart '64 were my were my sort of mid-teen years that was that was video games uh, for me in that right. period so uh, i didn't actually get my own copy until th- that christmas uh, it, i got it uh, christmas day uh thank you mum and dad and then i just remember waking up like crack of dawn yeah. almost as excited as christmas day on boxing day uh to to boot up the the console and uh basically sit in my bed playing games until i was forced out uh because my family were on the way around so so yeah it, it was really out of the console for a good couple of years i eventually sold it when the n64 that was when the uh, uh i got to the age where i could go and buy purchase alcohol uh, and so i needed mm-hmm. to free up some funds for the weekend which was a shame yeah. but reg- it was the, it was the biggest regret of my life up to that point uh and i think i bought an n64 again about five years ago uh which was basically i bought it to so it could sit in my cupboard untouched but uh, about a year ago i i i sort of caught the uh, corner of my eye as i was clearing some stuff out brought it downstairs plugged it in and uh yeah played it played it again interesting uh, yeah. okay were you somebody who uh went to town getting all going through all the difficulty settings because obviously this is a game where it does um yeah it does change things up quite a bit yeah i mean we'll, we'll get onto that later i guess the difficulty levels but that was like a revelation to to mm. me being able to you know play it on the you know the starter difficulty and then go back through it and build up and see the new objectives open up so yeah i i mean it was multiplayer when friends were there but you know when it when i was by myself it was it was going through the levels again and again uh you know see, going through to the do the uh bonus levels at the end uh, mm. everything yeah it was um yeah i i thoroughly rinsed the game i loved it super tony how about you yeah i brought the game near release i can't be 100 percent sure but it's certainly gone near release i still have my copy right here. Um, so that's a, a nice kind of treasured memento in my collection. I, I like the fact that I know I brought it from Blockbuster because Blockbuster used to do these things where they wrote on the side of the boxes. This one's just got Golden mm. N64 on it, um, just on the in, in, inlay sleeve bit, so they knew it was on the shelf. How to right. put it into the actual uh, box and where it went. And I look at it mm. now and think, what a horrible thing to do to destroy my case, but at least it's got memories. Um, yeah, I, I was an early adopter of the N64. At that time, I'd been doing a lot of... I was, what, 97, so I, you know, I'm, I'm 
early leaving school so I was almost straight into work after leaving school so I had disposable income and I'd, I'd got myself an N64 and uh, whether I was very excited about GoldenEye at the time probably not I just think it was one of those ones where the assignment of GoldenEye coming out almost happened like their day and date once the reviews hit it was I don't know I wasn't building up for it re- reading through all the magazines or anything I just like oh okay a, new sh- a shooter this sounds good on this platform um and yeah, just just plump for it. And it's interesting to see those kind of sales figures because you know, I I do feel like if you owned an N64 at the time, you also brought GoldenEye. Uh, as much as you know Mario 64, it's just one of those ones you purchased that system at that time. And it seemed to be everybody that I knew that had an N64 also brought a, you know, purchased a copy of GoldenEye. So it doesn't surprise me to see it in the, in the top three sellers. It did sellers. seem like that, but actually it was only one copy for every four N64s sold, just for the record. Yeah, mate. Yeah, but it, I thought it, it was going to be more. Then the fact that Mario 64 was what, one copy every... Three. Three. That mm. seems disgraceful in itself, and everyone <laughs> should be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> um, but even so, yeah, it, it wasn't, certainly it wasn't, I wasn't going into it desperately wanting to you know must get this game but it it was one as upon its release that i yeah i knew i was going to play and played it quite a bit um you know i was still at home at that time and i still had brothers around hanging around home so it, it certainly had its fair share of multiplayer um shenanigans but um yeah i i played through the difficulty you know, i imagine it was the standard difficulty and then messed around and some of the the, the hardest stuff but i was never a uh, a double O agent uh, ever any at any point in my my life, but um, I've been back to it. I've played about half the game now, but unfortunately, my N64 has decided to to lay itself to rest halfway through playing Goldeneye, which is kind of sad. That's uh, unusual for a Nintendo machine, yeah, particularly one without I, uh, I moving think part. Having done research, the expansion pack has given up the ghost because it was okay. a third party expansion pack. Um, that I know I don't have, you have not got the original I don't have the original jumper. it's not in the box and so I think it's uh, an easy fix those. yeah you I'm sure it's an easy fix yeah. but yeah, yeah it, it wasn't fast enough for, for this podcast to be in but you know we, we'll talk. We'll say this now we had a, a multiplayer session of this game at Darren's it must have been two months ago maybe maybe a bit more three months about ago about June June-ish there we go uh, in the summer, we had a, a mm-hmm. good sit-down multiplayer session with uh, a, mem- a number of the Kane and Rinse crew. Um, and it was really fun, and so we're, we've got some kind of real-life experience of how the multiplayer in that kind of ultimate setting uh, would work. But um, yeah, interesting replaying a, a section of the single player, and looking forward to talking about it on the show. Mm. Yeah, we should point out, uh, most people will know, but uh, this game doesn't require the expansion pack because the expansion pack hadn't been invented at, mm-hmm. the, at the time that GoldenEye, but it was uh, it was it was just a RAM expansion and everything was compatible with it as far as I know. I don't think it created any... No, it's just a um, pass-through at that point. Yeah, so. yeah. Darren, you're the closest thing we have to a super fan on this mm. podcast. So uh, <clears throat> brief your, your history in brief with, with <sighs> GoldenEye. Oh, man. Right. So I was just in a new school, Cedars Upper School in Leighton Buzzard, year nine. And I was trying to find out who I was. This is going to get quite deep. This game has emotional ties to me. I was trying to find out who I was and what kind of person I was. And I hadn't, I, I'd enjoyed video games up to this point. But, you know, until I met GoldenEye, I didn't really know who I was going to be. So I was a bit of a tear away in my, in my middle school years. You know, I used to get in trouble all the time, doing really naughty things that I shouldn't be doing. And one day I was walking into um, a computer shop in town called Interactive Minds, and there was a guy playing the game on the uh, on a big screen in the corner. And I asked him, oh, 
what, what game are you playing? Because I'd never seen GoldenEye, I'd never seen a James Bond film before, and I had no recollection of the series or anything about it. I just saw this guy playing GoldenEye, he was playing Double O Agent Train, and he was getting very frustrated because that level was, you know, notoriously hard. And he kind of, rather aggressively, or in my head aggressively, said, oh, I'm playing GoldenEye on the N64. And I thought, like, oh, okay, it looks really good. And, you know, I just walked away and never thought anything of it. And then... Several months later, in Cedars, I ended up buying a copy. It's still here in my hands now, you know, um, from a guy. And this guy was also linked to the guy I'd met in the shop. This guy being Will Mann, or Kip, who is now my best man at my wedding. Um, So I kind of met new friends through Goldeneye. And it kind of put me back on track, and it kept me focused. And, you know, away from, you know, several police visits and stuff like that, you know, pre-Goldeneye. So Goldeneye kept me on the straight and narrow, and... The moment I picked up the sniper rifle and zoomed in and shot someone's head, I knew that this game was going to like take me away to you know uh, you know a safer place, I guess. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a safer it's, place of headshots. Well, yeah. yeah, that's it. Like it, it kept me off the streets and like you know I was um, I'm a I was a bullied kid. I'm sure most most of us were, but I, the way I handled being bullied wasn't very good. So I reacted in very stupid ways. But having Goldeneye there to keep me focused and you know away from those people who were you know digging at me it yeah it kind of changed it, ch- it changed my life you know the people i met through goldeneye and now like i say he's my best man at my wedding in january uh yeah goldeneye for more reasons than me falling in love with the game is uh is a life changer for me and i've never really admitted that i kind of alluded to it on midnight resistance saying goldeneye you know if that game didn't exist i'd be dead i said it for comedic effect but I truly believe GoldenEye changed my life and not many games can say that because it was at the right point. It was teenage, it was teenage years and it was, it was all kind of merging together. And then, like I say, I got that <laughs> glorious headshot and I was like, Oh, the N64 is pretty amazing. So yeah. Um, yeah. A very unique, uh, you know, it's a history with a game, but one that I haven't really told anyone. Uh, and but, you've, of you course, go. Yeah, no, how am I going to follow that? But, um, (laughs) of course, we listeners who've been with us before, especially on Rare-related podcasts, will know um, you ended up working at Rare in their QA department, um, Uh, early 2000s. Yeah, mostly because I completely destroyed this game and perfect dark uh when i was in when i was getting interviewed they said so what kind of credentials do you have to be a qa tester and i pretty much said if you look at these two websites you can see that i picked apart golden eye and i still do i was still running around levels and looking in corners that have no relevance to any human in the world other than me and go what's in there and then you find weird obscure things that people shouldn't be finding and you also uh treated yourself recently to when you went to japan uh, to some rather nice uh, gear, golden eye gear from Super Potato. Yeah, you know that, that amazing shop in Tokyo Akihabara. Um, it kind of yeah, it was in a glass cabinet, and it was because Super Potato sell you know amazing stuff behind, behind glass cabinets in the in, in the best condition. So I picked up Banjo Kazooie and Golden Eye because why not? And uh, yeah, I've got it right in front of me now, and uh, like there's no reason for me to have it other than the fact that I just wanted it. So yeah, and I love it. It's got the the very traditional japanese control card in there and it's got a few like graphics that you know infographics that you wouldn't see in the american manual and you know there's a few changes there's a few body armor that that isn't there on the american version and the gun aims easier in the japanese version but Mm. other than that it's just a you know work of art that's what it is (laughs) yeah work of art so my story is not as interesting, but I was very excited at the time. Uh, I had no real anticipation for this game 
um, leading up to its release. Uh, when I got an N64, it was all about getting Super Mario 64 and Pilot Wings and whatever else. Even you know, even Turok Dinosaur Hunter was well ahead of Goldeneye on my list of games I wanted <laughs> to play on the N64. I'm, I've never been a massive Bond fan. Um, I, I liked The Spy Who Loved Me when I was a kid, but I'm, I don't get excited about new Bond films. Certainly don't get excited about licensed Bond games, having been there when 8-bit games like The Living Daylights and Licensed to Kill came out. They were, you know, they, they were a mixed bag as as film license games tended to be. Not necessarily, you know, completely without any merit, but certainly not the sort of games that you'd be, you know, going to a midnight launch for or anything like that. Not that they existed back then. But I just, uh, and, and I was also aware that um, throughout its development or throughout much of its development, um, GoldenEye was going to be uh, an on-rails uh, time crisis virtual cop style light gun game now there's nothing wrong with that I love those I love time crisis and virtual cop I played those games to death but the golden uh, the N64 was not getting a light gun so I had no interest in playing a light gun style game with a controller and I still don't the only way to play those games for me is with a virtual gun or a G-Con 45 and actually, you know, get the, the full immersive experience. So I was thinking this is going to be a pretty limp release. Uh, you know, I knew it was Rare and I knew Rare were already starting to do some some great things um, on the N64. Uh, but then the reviews started to come in. Back then, uh, reviews tended to arrive, you know, up to like six weeks or even sometimes a couple of months ahead of the game's actual release. Uh, the, the press would have copies and they'd play them. Maybe it wouldn't be the finished game, but they'd they'd be finished enough for them to be happy to uh, review it Uh, no one particularly minded too much unless they got found out in those days Um, and I remember it getting 94% in N64 magazine and a high 5 in CMBG and a 9 in Edge and this really took me by surprise so uh, it was it was on its way um, and I was thinking you know can I afford to get this N64 cartridges were, were 50 quid so you know, the same prices you pay to download a new title on PS4 or Xbox One today. Um, and at the time, my then girlfriend, who, who strangely enough actually knows Martin Hollis now, um, she was working in a kind of a Brighton, you know, kind of all things geek store with comics and toys and, and video games. And uh, she was uh, in there one Friday or Thursday, might have even been a Thursday afternoon, evening. And the the game guys in there who we were very friendly with said, uh, oh, we've got this in. And uh, and because we were friendly, um, they let her buy it there and then. So I got it, I think, eight days early. Um, and the, the story was it was a, quote, Scandinavian import. But I think that was just, uh, it was, yeah. you know, it was just a power game. And it was, uh, it was... Um, it was just an early an early sell to us um and yes no no harm was done but yeah i had it a week early um started playing as soon as uh, as soon as it was brought home and was yeah just absolutely in love with it for the next probably the next couple of years um it was a multiplayer fixture in my house, usually with the same two friends. Um, we didn't play; we didn't tend to play four player. Um, my girlfriend then wasn't wasn't that into playing. Uh, she, I think she occasionally joined us, but it was mainly me and my friend Jim Thomas and my friend Pete, and uh, we played it a lot. And meanwhile, I pretty much thoroughly rinsed the single player, although not to the not to the levels that maybe Brian and Darren did. So going back, uh, as I say, the development is well documented, but um, but we should say that it this did start off, uh, you know, around the time of, or possibly even before the film's release, there was talk of it being a, you know, a tie-in released um, 
in time for the release of the movie in 95 it would have been probably some sort of side-scrolling super nintendo game using the same technology as donkey kong country the silicon graphics stuff um but time moved on and and that didn't happen everything got moved on to the n64 um and yeah there's there's a lot there's there's a fair few resources out there there's level design sketches um there's uh there's quite an interesting article um at uh, unseen64.net which is a great resource um for people like us um showing some interesting things in the beta some of which darren i imagine are probably still squirreled away there in the code um somewhere i mean famously the game has a working spectrum emulator uh, on the cartridge and also roms for lots of the games that you'll have recently seen on rare replay <laughs> lots of this lots of ultimate play the game spectrum classics now there's you can only access this through can you access it at all or through an action replay or something uh, through like game shark action replay yeah <clears throat> exploder or whatever it's called um the guy who i mentioned on the banjo kazooie podcast called sub drag and ice mario well, i guess they're guys you know but i, I merged them together as one because they're like the <laughs> hacking guys of the n64 era they found the stop and swap stuff in the banjo kazooie era yeah they found all the secrets in the golden eye cartridge like the citadel level that is a complete mess but mm. an absolute fascinating piece that's just like squirreled away behind layers of code and nonsense so yeah like the ncc versions the early versions of the game have all this stuff in there you know the, the boat that took you over to the mysterious gun tower island in the dam level and all the you know all the bits and bobs that are locked away that you can't see you can get to them with uh, action replay um codes and you know if you just type in sub drag goldeneye vault i think it's called um yeah we'll put it in some show notes somewhere but there is a whole list of action replay stuff that you could see and he's got screenshots so you don't have to do action replay stuff but if you want to get you know serious you can get really serious and yeah i think probably one of the most famous things about the development of this game uh is the fact that it did change from being at some point it went from being on rails to to being uh you know a free a first person shooter with with freedom of movement now you know there are some some people have you believe this was like the first console first person shooter well it really wasn't that you know they've been going for quite some time but it did it did do quite a few new and interesting things um and so the story goes um, because obviously this was uh, nintendo produced but not developed um there are a few stories that uh that the game was you know pretty much a, a, a bit of a mess for quite a long time in, into its development. Even Martin Hollis sort of admits that. Um, and it took some interventions from Miyamoto and his team. Um, and, you know, so much so was the project not going well that Nintendo actually stopped funding the project at one point. I think they pretty much canned it, didn't they? But Rare continued to develop it because they had confidence that they were going to uh, get something out of this. I guess Nintendo were pretty glad that they did in the end. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's, um, I don't, you know, we don't, uh, these days we probably wouldn't get to find out so much about that stuff, but I'm still, I've still never quite been clear on what the exact point was when they went, yeah, this, this, uh, on rails stuff isn't working. Let's, let's let the player move I, around I, for themselves. I mean, I, I can only go by the Martin Hollis interview that uh, Darren kindly linked a few weeks ago to kind oh, it's of a the, speech. Uh, yeah. we should say it's a, a game developer conference speech from a few years um, back. It, it, comes across actually this interview comes across quite dry if you kind of just sit there and watch it but the the stuff in there is is fascinating for for one martin hollis was the only 
game developer. So the rest were just made up of people that had never made. No, it was him and okay. one. Yeah, him and one other yeah. had worked but on games. The rest were just made up of people that were kind of new to the company, architects. You know, people that had, had you know the the ability to put things into plan, but not necessarily you know, have ever executed it. So to to come back and think about how this game got piece together it's a long complex story for sure but just hearing him talk about the nitty-gritty of you know just this ragtag bunch of guys that had never really developed a game he was a second-rate kind of coder at this point and then being given the golden eye license is just bewildering to actually sit down and listen to and some of the stories that he has it, it just sounds like the, the whole point between switching from the virtual cop to a full-blown 3d environment seems to be their own ambition like they started off with that there was a a time where that was something and well, they had a, a spline that ran through facility level and it was a spline that controlled the camera so you were going through the level from beginning to end i'm sure the level had changes but at one point they just took the spline off and right. gave the camera free movement and they realized that's where the game was you know headed yeah the story goes that um you know they had that vertical slice they made a complete one level facility was that level and they played it, and Martin Hollis just turned around and said, "This is awful." <laughs> um, and they'd spent, a, you know, the best part of a, a year or so putting this together. Realised, yeah, more. I think it was I think, going. I think that was about halfway through yeah, development. Absolutely mm. nowhere that it wasn't a game that he would want to play or anybody else should play. So they just freed up the camera and then, re- you know, just this. It, well, I got he, the impression actually that 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 he was talking about playing that bit of the game i think that was after the camera had already been freed up he was talking about the lack of um objectives yeah the lack of objectives mm. and how dead the world felt how the gut the gun the aiming the shooting didn't All feel that right stuff. And it, it seems like that the last year they spent on um, you know, tweaking and polishing all that stuff, which is stuff that we talk about a lot on Kane Rinse as being important. And it is a lot of the things in, in the world of GoldenEye that perhaps weren't, hadn't been done so much before, like the world responding to the bullets that you fire, both audio in terms of audio and, and visual stuff. That's the stuff that I remember really blowing me away back in 1997 the objectives are based on mario 64 uh, martin mm. hollis really liked the, the stars of mario 64 and he kind of wanted to implement that in the first person shooter so the objectives are you essentially getting a star or a jiggy other you know the, the only difference is that if you die kind of in a roguelike way you'd, you'd have to go back to the start and you mm. know do the objectives again yeah, other uh, famous uh, tidbits about the development, things that didn't come to fruition with the idea that uh, each of your uh, your file saves was going to feature the image of uh, of a previous Bond, uh, as well as uh, Brosnan, of course, but uh, the three, you know, Moore, Connery and uh, Dalton, um, not Lazenby. Um, but that didn't happen because they didn't secure the image rights, although they had all the right, they had, you know, pretty much carte blanche for things that appeared in the GoldenEye movie, including access to the set plans and all that sort of thing, and the actual sets uh, they couldn't include the bonds as multiplayer characters um their tuxedos still appear um and another great feature that i think would have been really cool was the uh, the concept of the rumble pack reload which i'm sure i remember <laughs> seeing um in like in some kind of promotional video when yeah, they, were, they were, yeah. yeah they were still intending to use it weren't That's they? a terrible idea you can, no, you can also see brilliant. the four bonds in the instruction <laughs> manual in one of that's the screenshots, right. yeah. in the beta screenshot left over where you can see for all the bonds. I'm sure that's kind of like a little, let's sneak it in there just before, you know, before anyone notices. Just a yeah. little nod. 
Well, speaking of that, um, you know, obviously we'll come on to the multiplayer, but the multiplayer was completely unplanned, undocumented. This was, you know, the work uh, of of the main programmer. Was it Ken or or David Doak? Ken Lobb or David Doak? One of one of those two, I think. Or anyway, one of one of the main team um, pretty much uh, wrote the multiplayer alone in the last few weeks it was yeah, a complete afterthought months, last two months of development yeah nintendo had no intention of making not even releasing rare. this as a multiplayer game no not even rare new um and also apparently after the game had gone to final um testing or whatever uh martin hollis once again uh took the code tweaked a few things improved a few things and then put it back without anyone ever knowing so um some of the things like you know there are a few texture glitches in it and, and that sort of thing but apparently it could have been a whole lot worse had he not d- had that one final basically illegal pass and to, into fixing a few more things so i um i mean i, I don't want to you know keep on harking about this but it's it's amazing to see game development now and of course there is a, a brilliant games that are made by very small teams uh, today but to me before i i knew the yeah, the knowledge of you know golden eye was made by essentially 10 people that that knowledge to me i, I always saw golden eye as this huge project that was released on this you know on the n64 platform one of the biggest selling games of all time everything seemed to be designed by you know a lot of people like funding seemed to be massive towards this obviously i was younger and didn't quite maybe understand some of the the aspects of this but even now i I can't believe that game was produced by so few people and just pure kind of game design or pure will to get that project from start to finish and you know rule across the road humps on the way it's it's crazy just to think of what i believe is this massive big budget title that succeeded you know superbly on on that console was actually just almost not quite an independent joint but you know in many regards could be classed as that now well a lot of a lot uh, i was gonna say a lot of the um sort of histories of it talk about it being like anti-design principles that they that they applied to this and i thought that was fascinating stuff to read about how they were just sort of they just were experimenting they were just you know give it well, given sort of the, the, the map design is is like that isn't it so they talk about a lot of the design of the main levels there's lots of you know, dead end rooms with basically just boxes in it's because I think one of the guys was basically just like a an architect designer so he was creating <laughs> rooms how you would normally create them within you know a facility or a or a house or whatever it may be so you know it's just they ended up with empty rooms with just space and but it, it gave the world more of that kind of you know realistic lived in space which was yeah. very much not a thing of the time no, but you're yeah, right. they went to the, the film studio. Sorry, Brian. The, no, they sorry. went to the film studio and took pictures of everything, and, and then created the levels first, and then built the game around the levels they had. Which, yeah, which, like you say, it kind of the levels do have an open world, you know, a very micro open world to them. You can go where you want and when you want, um, and uh, yeah, that kind of makes the game feel, uh, you know, very uh, unique for the time. Like there was nothing doing that at the time before. It was kind of like just kind of run forward shooters whereas this one allowed you to sort of I suppose a facility is just a prime example of you know choosing different routes and you know depending on how what time you press the start button the guards will be in different places but if you went a certain way at a certain speed you'd know that a guard would be coming through the door at a certain time and that kind of stuff you learn through playing and it, it is like a proper like a you know nintendo game where you do learn by playing the game it never really tells you like le- level one damn it's very simple on agent you just run to the end and that that's true for perfect dark as well but they very slowly but surely they they integrate 
uh, new mechanics without really teaching you about it. It's just kind of like, oh, right, I have to now put a bug on a screen, like a tracking bug. And the game doesn't never really tutorialize you. It just kind of eases you in. And that, that's partly down, well, that's probably wholly down to the levels first, objectives later um, yeah. situation. Well, I don't know how you go from a freeform design approach to something that felt, certainly to like my 15-year-old eyes, like a game that had been designed to within an inch of its life. You know, it just felt, everything felt, like it was meant to be there it was you know it was it was crafted to be that experience now obviously that might have come later you know through refinements and everything like that but it just it felt so much like it was essentially a you know a game design jam session that ultimately came good in the end but it's it was just fascinating to read up about it in preparation you know just learning about how it all came together and the fact that for me the game lives on in my mind, stronger than the movie does. I must have seen the movie twice, maybe. Um, and I'm still constantly uh, trying to unpick you know, which bits were game, which bits were film. It mm. just it created such a strong visual sense and such a, such a, a, a cohesive narrative for the GoldenEye film, uh, for the GoldenEye story. That, you know, if you watch the film, there are bits that are missing from it. That, yeah. that that you remember vividly, you remember experiencing it, but it was the game that you was experiencing it from. And it's, yeah, it's I watched the crazy. film after playing the game. So when I eventually watched the film and bought like, the deluxe box set because I was, you know, need, you know, I was head high deep at the moment. I was like, yeah, I'm going to buy everything golden nine. I bought everything. I watched the film. I was like, well, where's the where, where's the frigate level? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, you, you do see a, a boat in golden eye, but it's not. Uh, Golden Eye the film, but it's nowhere near as in depth as my you know my favourite level Creative in the Nintendo Four game. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, what, what was the where are we at the lexicon of you know first person shooters around the ninety seven era? Well, it was um, we'd had Duke Nukem three D on the PC, which was pretty kind of high uh, highly thought of at that point, and ninety seven in the autumn we got the Sega Saturn. Um, conversion of Duke Nukem 3D, which was a fantastic version by Lobotomy Software. Obviously, in 1995, we had uh, Doom on the PlayStation. Um, yeah, there have been a few other things uh, Chirok, here and there. Chirok was out. Chirok was already out. Yeah, so, mm. um, so, so in my mind, I, I sent... Pre-Half-Life, though. Yeah. Pre-Half-Life, that was next year, 98. Well, so, so in my mind, I, I vividly remember playing Doom um, all around that, that period of time on my friend's PC or my friend Paul's PC. Um, and being obviously blown away by that, and we, I'm sure we'll do a Doom episode one day. Um, but that was very much as I, I kind of treated first-person shooters as you know, maybe not Twitch gaming as we know it today, but very much things would run at you in a fairly non-stop ordeal, and you would it would all be about management of the control of things all running at you. And yeah, you know, I, I, I I do remember you know obviously the facility level being one that we'll keep coming back to, but that that more kind of you know, sp- slower pace kind of the thinking man shooter before we even really knew what that was about um i remember that being i think it, it for me the complete key to the you know the longevity of this title and why i played it for many many years after it first came out was just i was never particularly good at that management control in doom so to have something like this that seemed to use the environment you know more in a more interesting way um you know certainly won me over not to criticize doom in any respect no, and obviously we, you know, we did cover Wolfenstein uh, earlier this year, and that was uh, that was five years before Goldeneye, mm-hmm. um, and you know we enjoyed it's it. It's, it yeah. seemed, you know, it's, it seemed 
incredibly simple now but there's some things that say a game like doom and wolfenstein did have that goldeneye didn't would be the sort of secret Mm -hmm. walls and secret doors i'm not counting the sort of stuff that you do darren of breaking the game i'm Mm. talking about you know this this had uh goldeneye had fewer sort of stuff like this like most of the stuff that was in there was um designed there wasn't just you know there weren't collectibles and and treasures in the same way or or things like that um yeah i mean another uh design point we should uh mention is and funnily enough there's an article being published about this today uh martin hollis talked in his gdc speech about um the gore that they had in the game early on they had proper (laughs) um bitmap blood spray and all this Mm -hmm. sort of stuff which could have been quite spectacular but quite unfitting really because you know bond i know you know Mm. some of the films some of the like some of the dalton films and some of the more recent daniel craig uh, action scenes have been a a, you know a bit more violent but generally um it's been you know for all it's kind of if you think about people being fed to sharks people blowing up all that sort of thing you you know bond could be quite gory but it's always always been presented in a hyper real slightly sanitized fashion um but actually apparently miyamoto and nintendo you know wanted <laughs> wanted most of the killing taken out they certainly um toned down the gore massively yeah, although i always still yeah. i always still think it looked quite g- gruesome when you had you know you'd completely painted an enemy with red decals mm. so it looked like yeah. they were just kind of oozing blood from the inside it was still you know by by real life standards it was an extremely violent game but it it sounds like you know they could have gone down the doom route with you know they could you could have jibbed people with a rocket launcher or whatever else that would have been a very different experience Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean talking about the graphics that was you know the gameplay and the graphics wowed me both instantly Mm -hmm. in 1997 but i still remember going up the, the tower on the dam for the first time and even look at you know for the next couple of years i didn't have a gaming pc at this point although you know i'd seen games in high resolution in action but there was something about uh the way that they portrayed the real world with the gun the gun movement and Mm. the sort of the the the, for the time convincing walking animations of the enemy guards and stuff like that going up that tower and zooming and by the way i don't think this was the first game with a zoom scope i think that may have been uh, i think the, the one there was one earlier that year mdk that had a, an mm-hmm. amazing zoom um there and there may have been others but again a lot of people sort of associate this with sniping for the first time and it certainly brought things on um it was just like it felt it was that thing where you go wow this is basically photorealistic and of course <laughs> you look at it now and it really isn't but at the time it was uh it it was an extraordinary um, sort of facsimile of reality, albeit with, you know, these very basic blurry textures and, and whatever else. Well, the joke of it is, oh, my God, look at that draw distance now. You, you play it now and it's, it, I, I don't know, I, I'm pretty good at understanding where games come from having played them at the time. But, you know, it's someone who would say, oh, my God, that is shocking. But actually, I, I had the opposite um yeah, reaction when i was there the, at the down, time yeah. in 97 i was going oh my god that's incredible look at the draw distance is incredible it's it's it is funny how you know obviously we know how things age but to see you know the reaction of somebody now versus the reaction of somebody playing at the time is you know two poles apart but um I, I think the thing that sold it to me then and that opening down level 
is the key to this is what is that I, I realized I could you know, if I sniped correctly I could get out of that opening down level without alerting any guards and the feeling I, I'd never really experienced that kind of feedback before which is you know if if you play better then there's a, a more interesting outcome rather than just running and gunning and shooting and and you know just pushing forward it was and I'm sure we've all been there climbing you know managing to kill that first guard around the corner just as you go over that little you know track bridge taking out the tower getting the tower getting the sniper rifle then then picking out I think there's two guys that come you know, either one and then one on the other side. And if you take them out, then you can quietly move through that whole section there to the first door. Don't want the alarm to go off. Just the movement and bits like that, I, I can... haven't obviously replayed it recently, but before I got there, I could replay the entirety of that level in my head time and mm. time again. Um, well, that's where the level really clicks for me. Mm. The, the sniping's great. And you, you, know, you pursue that vehicle and it goes through the double doors. Mm-hmm. But the level really clicks when you see that guy on the left bolt for the alarm. And I've never experienced that in a game before, but he runs for the alarm and you think, well, why is he running over there? And he presses the button and the mm. guy in the building with the dust device comes out and just murders you completely because that gun is amazing. But <laughs> you play that level again and you're like, right, okay, I'll take out all these guys. And the fact that you can see them from a distance doing their patrols, they're just patrolling mm-hmm. on their own. Like no one's telling them to do it, they're just doing it. And then so you make your way through, you let the vehicle through the double doors again and you shoot that guy in the bum. And he hops around holding <laughs> his bum and you're like, mm. oh my God, this game. Like yeah. it just seems to open up so many rewards for you just by playing it like you're not even you're not even finishing a level but you just shot a guy in the back you know and he's hopping around like he's reacting to what you've done and then you realize well hang on what if i shoot the hats off and then that becomes like a meta game upon itself and like can i complete a double o agent level with shooting all that's the just hats you darren <laughs> again but like things like this just it absolutely fascinated me and i i just it kind of took me you know, to another place. Yeah, and it was all that stuff that was hugely ambitious uh, with Martin Hollis sharing his sort of design documents in, in that speech. He talks about, you know, wouldn't it be cool if, wouldn't it be cool if... And the difference is, I suppose, with a lot of projects that they actually had... They had the power for the time, you know, they had at the time in what was in some ways the most powerful uh, console, although obviously they didn't have, uh, you know, CD, <laughs> digital storage medium um, away from, you know, they had a cartridge limitations and that sort of thing, which is mm. interesting given that how much spare stuff there is on there that they didn't yeah. need to be on there. But they seem to moan about the lack of space, but there's so much stuff in there that they could have chopped away. <laughs> Whole levels and yeah, various mm. things. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that was, I think that's what really sold it to me. Like, I didn't care that this game was James Bond and I was playing James Bond at all. Like, for a lot of people, this was a James Bond fantasy fulfilment, and that's fine and that's great for those people but for me this was this was me being you know this voiceless silent avatar being you know someone like james bond doing really cool stuff but it was it was more shooty than james bond tended to be you mm. know I, I i guess i you know i haven't seen all the modern films um i guess he you know still uses guns quite a bit and whatever else but you know there were points in this game where you're you know just mowing people down with a machine gun which <laughs> isn't very james bond like uh, by and large as i understand it but it was again it's that how all that stuff that we hadn't seen so much of before certainly not all in the same place that sold the world to you like guards doing their own thing um making seemingly intelligent moves uh like raising an alarm rather than just running at you or yeah i mean even if you'd played like something like duke nukem 3d which would have been relatively state-of-the-art at this point you know i love that game and i, and I still i can still get a lot of fun out of playing the the various recent re-releases but you know the enemies are just doing enemy th- first person shooter enemy things 
they you know they 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 move from left to right they don't hide they you know particularly they you know they attack you they shoot at you um you kill them they squish there's none of this sort of sense that there's a thought going on and similarly again duke newcomb had some cool stuff like you know you could blow up sections of a level and and whatever else but i remember just spending hours shooting bullet decals in the walls of facility mm-hmm. and just seeing how many you could record before <laughs> yeah. you know the ram started to run out and it had to it had to delete the old ones you know trying to write write things on the walls and this sort of thing yeah. yeah and and again it seems like pretty much nothing now you know any any game you don't even notice that you're leaving a mark on on a level in a modern game you don't you barely notice an animation on a on a guard when you know if you shoot him in the foot or something with them hopping about you know now it's just kind of like a you know it's a, like a little smirk but back then it was like come and look at this yes yeah, look at this you know it was like a shout to, to to your girlfriend in the next room saying i've you know like you said i've just shot this guy in the pants and now he's hopping around <laughs> grabbing his and I, I don't know how you recreate that game a moment for somebody that's no, never played golden eye up until well, i don't think point. you can and, and you can't mm-hmm. right and we've, no. we've talked many times on the show how you know things of old and versus things of playing now um interesting because <laughs> So Metal Gear Solid came out a year later from this. Uh, 98, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. which I, I think, you know, most of us would agree it, it, you know, it evolved that kind of action stroke stealth genre to, to me anyway, to a, to a whole different level. Yeah. Obviously a very different interface. Very, with, very, very different. With the game but, world, um, yeah. yeah, third person for one, but, um, yeah, it's, 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 you know, if I just compare that versus that, I'd say there were baby steps made in in GoldenEye, and I, I hadn't. That, I'm sure that had no influence on Metal Gear whatsoever. But it, you know, there's a fairly Probably big, not. and I think the industry starts to take fairly some fairly major steps forward from GoldenEye's um, release in '97. You know, and progressively where we are now. But that, that doesn't take away, you know, those first steps I really had with GoldenEye to see that stuff happen. And you know, just talking about that level, the, the very opening damn level, and I'm sure we're we'll to talking about many others. But, you know, going through there, I can recall all the sounds of that, you know, that alarm going off, that, mm-hmm. that terror of that alarm going off of, oh, I've kind of almost like now if that happens, you just press start, you know, press start and restart the level because you kind of failed in some way. I'd find myself doing that, which is, you know, unheard of for me in, in the games around that era. Um, and it's just even that down level, we'll we'd get talking, I'm sure, about the, the, the optional op- objectives. But isn't it in, in, on the lower difficulties you can literally get past that pit and then just jump off the side of the dam and actually mm, completely yeah. avoid? There's a massive complex that goes around the back of that yeah. dam level <laughs> over and over again. And just seeing how they were willing with that game, game design there to say, well, you know, we you you can just push through this game if you just you know want to see the bare basics, or there is more for you. Remember the first time completing that level, jumping off the dam, seeing the brilliant. You know, panning shot where he's jumping off and being just blown away by the three D nature. Well, he's got no rope. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. He'll survive his bond. <laughs> but um, equally, um, you know, on my second and third playthrough, just going, well, what was this building on the right? And exploring all the way through there, feeling like it had no consequence whether I did it or not, and kind of half ignoring it, and then playing on later difficulties levels and and realizing, oh my god, there's so many more things I could be doing in this game. And just the open-ended nature of a game at that time on on that platform, which I was, bear in mind, I was still in shock after playing Mario um, 64, I feel, <laughs> for, for about a year of how good that was. And just feeling like the N64 at that time and, and Ocarina to follow was just in this immensely powerful machine where these new gaming experiences were being formed. Um, 
so yeah i don't know it's just just talking about it is kind of bringing that those memories back to me you know flooding over let's talk about some of those levels i think it's fair to say they were a mixed bag mm-hmm. uh i think some of the levels i i remember some of them much more fondly than others mm. um but some of the ones that I wasn't so fond of, I remember I had a friend at the time, another Jim, not the Jim I was playing multiplayer with, uh, Jim Elston. Um, he once showed me his uh, crazy skills on Double O Agent, and he was showing me one of the uh, one of the levels, the one with all the computers in. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, yeah, it's the complex. Data. Comple- oh, complex um yeah and he was showing me his you know his perfect double o run through that level and how you did it and um top level and that yeah and that sort of opened up you know because i I'd, I'd always found sections of that on on the hardest settings really difficult and he was showing how you could uh, basically you know control it to your whims to a point yeah. as long as you were good enough um, but you got to learn the behaviour of the game in terms of how many guards it would spawn and spawn and when and where they would come in and this sort of thing. So there's actually a kind of um, part of being good at GoldenEye is understanding the, the the behind the scenes sort of science of it. Is that right, Darren? Yeah. So in GoldenEye, if you shoot a gun uh, which isn't silenced, you're basically you're, you're you, you won't see it obviously, but you'll give it a radius. And if you were to shoot a bullet within a second after that bullet the radius will get bigger. So it's always shrinking in back on you. So if you were to fire one, then a certain, a radius, and if any guys in that radius hear it, you know, they'll come running towards you. But then if you were to fire three in a row, that radius would be massive. And then, you know, more people from further away would come towards you. There's also a respawn manipulation in both multiplayer mm. and single player, where if you, if you stand near where a person, you know, AI or human is going to respawn, they don't respawn there. They spawn somewhere else. So that's why you'll see speedrunners and stuff like that standing in certain places. And if you were me, you were waiting for people to spawn in facility or multiplayer because you knew if you stood exactly <laughs> there, yes. they were going to spawn. Um, there's also some flaws that you can shoot underneath. And, you know, if people are running above you, you can shoot them if you shoot at a 45 degree angle. But yeah, that's just me being a bit <laughs> crazy. But yeah, um, so the levels, they it kind of goes on a progressively downhill spiral for me. Mm, <laughs> like it starts, uh, yeah. off, it starts off really strong and it ends up on a real weak uh, kind of ending. Like jungle caverns is okay. Uh, you know, the antenna's a bit of a disappointment. Um, but I, I think the complex is... It's a it's a good looking level, but it's just ridiculously hard. Um, yeah, the, the the levels are really hit and miss, and it, it peaks with me at frigate. I know facility is like the flagship, but frigate for me is kind of like ah, like the, the 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 epitome of that game. It's just like a little mini sandbox where you can go wherever you want in this boat, up, down, left, and right. More and, corridor, yeah. Yeah, there is, but I like the corridor t- levels. Oh, you know, I was always into the shooting. Into yeah. I always like the bit under the dam in the corridors. Mm-hmm. I love the train. Yeah, I yeah. love the train. I thought yeah, that was a good. great level. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was hard, but the, I just, I remember the first time doing it, running into that very final um, carriage and having to try and figure a way out. It's and, ridiculous. And not being, a, and then, <laughs> I don't watch. know, how many times I must have done it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, <clears throat> yeah, laser watch, little mm-hmm. bits on the floor, but then also trying to get it perfect and doing it, you know, yeah, it was quite time. pernickety, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was, it was frustrating, but the sense of satisfaction when you done it, you jumped down and then, oh, yeah. running out yeah, was yeah, great. Using Bond's laser watch, you know. Oh, we was... had to shoot Uramov in in the face to release Natalia first, like yeah. that. It, mm. Getting to the end of the train was a mission enough, but then to get that pi- pixel perfect shot on that guy's face so he goes behind the barrier to then have a time pressure yep. on you with the laser watch, which isn't great anyway. 
Uh, again, there's more manipulation you can do with the. Uh, so if you don't kill loads of soldiers in that level, your laser watch is more powerful. <laughs> Just really? Little... Yeah. Yes. Again, I like, never knew that. Yeah, it's crazy little things. Like that's again speedrunners and all that nonsense. But um, yeah, I the the game for me is a definite up and down. I've only noticed this recently, like playing back in back then. I hadn't really taken into account the quality of the levels, but looking back at it now, I'm like, man, jungle is just a heap of it's all mess. Man. Like you compare that to Turok, and I'd, I'd take a Turok level over that any day, <laughs> wow. to be honest. Yeah, and <laughs> draw distance I'm plays a, big... a huge part in that, though. In you know that jungle level. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of it at all. It's got a really bad boss fight. None of the boss fights in the game are great anyway, but that one, you can just wait on the other side of the bridge and because the AI can't see across gaps, you can just, just <laughs> you know, just ping her off easily. It's ridiculous. I never liked Statue Park. Myself. Yeah, that was the most frustrating no. for me, I think. Well, they said during development, they literally made levels out of residue pieces that you had just lying around. Mm-hmm. Like They were just like, oh, well, we've, we've got a bunch of stuff we haven't used yet. Let's make a statue park. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that was in the film, but like mm-hmm. the way, it looks like a cut and paste level because it kind of is. Well, it's just, uh, I, I, if I remember it correctly, you essentially just run in one direction and then run back in the opposite direction, right? Yeah, and you meet if you Charlie don't get lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, yeah, you, you get meet... to one point and then head out again, and, it, and it's just you know constantly. It was just that was a constant headache uh, playing yeah. through that level. And uh, but the, the reason I loved the train level so much, and this picks up on your point earlier, Leon, is that for me it was very much a James Bond fantasy, and it was a James Bond fantasy was that was um, cemented and confirmed, I think, from the moment. Uh, the big, very beginning of the dam level, where, where you get the, the the panning shot, the spinning around of the mm-hmm. of the opening environment, and then round the back of Pierce Brosnan's head, and you know through his mm. through to see things from his eyes. I thought Literal that immersion, yeah. Almost, yeah. Oh yeah, I was a sucker for that. Uh, it just mm. yeah hooked me. Hooked Sold me as well by away. the watch as well. I I never think you can yeah. underestimate yeah. the fact that he brings his his wrist up to to his face, and oh. you start to read the watch from that. It's I yeah, hate it, but I love it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, if you're playing on Double O Agent and you want to pause it, you mm. you will take hits during that animation yeah. of you yeah. looking at your yeah. watch. It's just like, oh man, That's like, just appalling design by modern standards. Yeah, to, but, to, uh, to let that happen. But I mm. love it at the same time because it is amazing that the fact that it literally pulls into your face and you're in the watch. But there's so many problems with it. It's kind of you know must be bleeding edge technology, like yeah. for how cutting bleeding edge it was. There's so many drawbacks that come uh, around. But it still works, doesn't it? It still works as an immersion because you think, I mean, I remember the first time, you know, bringing up the Pip-Boy in Fallout 3. Yeah. It still had that same buzz of, oh, look, (laughs) it's my arm. Yeah, that's true. It's engaged. Where you're real Pip-Boy suit. Even to stuff Uh, like the, you know, the the health meter not being just a number on top of a screen. You know, you've got those, that kind of sidebars and, and, you know, you're, what is it, your armor pack and stuff like that. That was definitely uh, influential. Yeah, it's, one, it's, you know, but one it's, of the many influential things. I, th- I, I personally think you know that that there is elegant game design, and you know, to, to hear how it kind of come come about, etc., is is fascinating. To you know, quite an early game like that. There's many games that followed this for years and years and years that had quite ugly um, elements of you know on screen furniture, and you know it was it pulled something off the really interestingly back in you know early days '97. Mm. Yeah, the, the ammo count, the ammo count's really tiny. Mm. Uh, you know, for, for better or for worse. But yeah, it's kind of in there in the corner, and uh, you know, it doesn't bombard the screen with a bunch of nonsense. Well, not nonsense, but you know, it it does away with a lot of real estate and gives you all you need. You know, just the, the just a crosshair if you press the R button and an ammo count in the corner. Yeah, supposedly the um, the sort of little zoom on on the uh, bringing up the crosshair with the shoulder button is probably uh, a leftover from the Virtua Cop 
origins mm. um but it you know it works and and i mean this brings us neatly onto controls uh, and the many control options they included um one of the things uh, that we've heard over and over again uh when collecting feedback which you'll hear later for this game is that people now pretty much loathing <laughs> to test the controls by and large not you know there are exceptions some people are okay with them some people didn't have a problem at the time some people did but when I play this game now, and I've been back to it bits and bobs the occasional time, uh, and I've been back to Perfect Dark because obviously it was re- released on 360 and uh, and and now on Rare Replay, and that's a really good. If but this is I'm going to use this again in my summary. But if you want a good idea as to how GoldenEye plays now, play Perfect Dark on 360 or Xbox mm. One because you know in all the, it's a sci-fi spiritual successor and whatever. But the way that game handles is basically the same albeit that version is nice and smooth yeah, so it's 60 frames smooth a second truly be that, but yes. it's, yeah so imagine imagine that and you know i remember thinking that i was really excited about perfect dark coming out and i'm really glad i own it on both formats that it's out on now but i remember the response to that ultimately being incredibly muted and i and i think for mm. most people now playing goldeneye will be the, the controls will be a massive barrier so there are multiple setups and multiple, multiple setups. You can even play it sort of in the style of a modern FPS by using two <laughs> controllers and using a left and a right analog stick. So it's somewhere between using a nunchuck and a Wiimote. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of crazy, mm-hmm. but for some people it might work. Whereas when I've gone back to it, like when we played multiplayer back in the summer, I was using the uh, head uh, left stick, the default, basically, the, the, yeah, the left one, analog one. stick to move. Yeah, one one moves your head around or moves your view around. Um, within that, you can. I think there are options to sort of uh, invert vertical vertical axis. Is there if, if you go to one two or mm. something else? Yeah, um, the, the game's got a surprising wealth of options tons, in the watch. Yeah, yeah. But so, moving on the like moving on the C buttons, the camera buttons, sort of actively it it, it does ape a mouse and keyboard mm-hmm. setup yeah. in a That's lot of ways. That's how I played it, but. Yeah. It's the other way around in terms of hands, yeah. Uh, which, which now going back confuses my brain. You can use the D-pad to walk around as well, but the A and B buttons sure. aren't on that side, so no, you know. that's a big but, problem. But I think it was kind of the first time in a first-person shooter, uh, other than Turok, briefly, that I had felt you know uh, I spent a, lo- a long time in you know on a, with an analog stick in a first-person shooter mode. Turok mm. taught me how to play with. Uh, what we know as solitaire uh, 1.2 yeah um you know the you know it's all they're all named after various james bond uh, ladies i think solitaire right. and honey and mm-hmm. all the other ones i don't know because i don't really watch james bond but yeah Turok kind of laid the groundwork and i think they must have been influenced by Turok's controls at some point because if that wasn't in there i don't think i would be you know half as good as i was because the, the freedom of the analog stick you can just whip around at such a speed that you know double agent on the original honey settings i can't imagine many people doing it I always played it on default and I got pretty good at it. I mean, I was not, I was not the best, but I, but I did well enough and, and yeah, you just got used to it. And the other Mm. thing was you weren't playing lots of other competitive games with, with very similar, but slightly different control methods. You know, I was playing other first person shooters, but the control methods, you know, um, something like exhumed on the Saturn or Hmm. uh, power slave. If you're in America, I love that game. That was, that was lobotomy's game before they did quake and Duke Nukem on the Saturn. Um, it's a fan, fantastic, um, sort of, uh, Cthulhu esque, uh, 
desert set sort of almost metroidvania fps but the controls were so different on that to goldeneye that there was no confusion it's like you move on the d-pad with this mm. and you know you've got your buttons on the right and, and whatever it's, else it's hard to criticize goldeneye for for control issues really when that pad we all know is designed for mario 64 um, yeah yeah and the, the c buttons and some people just always hated that well, yeah, controller which i never did and it, that's that's the key difference it, but it was designed with that game in mind and for that game it's perfect you know that you have the, the movement of mario and you have a you know the odd camera you know tap here and there just to change his perspective around it, it's you know, absolutely fine but yeah I'm, I'm sure when nintendo made the n64 they weren't thinking well the future of gaming is probably first person shooters for the next few years let's <laughs> design this they didn't design it around that and yeah, i think you know given given the slight hamstrung nature of, of what that controller was designed for um, going forward, like I, I believe you know, they gave you enough options to kind of force your way out of um, you know, it not being... It's, it's never going to be ideal, I don't think, with that control setup. And certainly going back to it now is uh, an almost a culture shock because you're so used to playing other games is so much more smoother... Um, you know, and, and just more suited controls that it, it takes a while but I found going back to it recently and, and even in that multiplayer session you know that shock actually it's it's only for about you know 10-15 minutes as you rewire the brain around mm-hmm. and you know I, I don't think GoldenEye's issue necessarily lie, lays with the controls now I think it's more of a you know a technical hurdle that I think mm. that game was probably trying so much so soon on that platform that you know it's by today's mm. standards it's very very hard to get away that the frame rate is not optimal uh in any way shape or form um was by it the first standard. first person shooter to use a trigger for shooting a gun well that was that was the next thing i wanted to mention um i think so i, I can't remember what Turok did but i don't think it did that did it um, um i I think it did, to, to be honest, now, now that we've uh, said it. Okay. Yeah. But I remember it feeling extra cool. Um, and mm. what this did have, um, because we'd now had the Rumble Pack, was um, this was the first game that really made me appreciate uh, vibration in controllers. Because when the Rumble Pack first came out, I thought, uh, short-lived gimmick, two games will use vibration you know, in the usual fashion, and then that'll, be, that'll be the end of that. As it turns out, apart from the blip with the, uh, with the original DualShock uh, non, the non-DualShock 3, the 6-axis, hmm. um, an increasingly and sophisticated... Uh, well, and WaveBird, true. And, <laughs> but generally, the trend has been towards an increasingly uh, sophisticated set of uh, vibration motors in, in controllers. Hmm. And now when, it, when the vibration isn't done well, uh, I really notice it. Um, and, and yeah, GoldenEye, just that feeling of actually getting some recoil just to me again was another thing which really sold sold this particular game world it's not just a recoil of that it's also the the animation of the you know where you're hitting the soldiers it's that two-tone it's i fired a shot because i felt it i see a reaction it's um rather than just head blows up or whatever it may be from doom yeah or sprite collapses in Um, heap yeah yeah it's it's the selling of all those actions even even when you know me criticizing the frame rate i can think of times where you come out of zoom um and kind of bring down the gun normal scope and the frame rate just going completely bonkers. Like it, at all times, it felt almost like that's just what the game was. Like it felt maybe gave it a bit more weight. <laughs> it's it's odd going back to it now because I don't get that at all. But I remember them thinking, "Oh yeah, it's just part of this." I did, I guess I didn't really understand, you know, you know, the importance of super smooth frame rates, etc. Then, um, well, they, you know, we were we we you ha- again context. You have to remember that back then. 
um, unless you were, you know, regularly playing high-end PC mm. games, um, you were playing, you know, if you were playing on PlayStation or, or whatever, you know, so, you know, some games had better frame rates than others, some some games had better draw distance than others, but generally, the, uh, yeah, I was just barely conscious of the huge drops in frame rate because I was too busy having fun, you know, mm-hmm. and... You know, I guess that that helps me understand how people, you know, people who really hate the sort of the, um, the, the like, digi- yeah, digital foundry comparisons of, of uh, you know, numbers of pixels on screens and stuff like that. Some people really, really hate that. And they're just like, well, I don't notice it and I'm having fun. So why would you why would you be so reductive as to do that? And I don't always feel like that because I find those things quite useful sometimes. But but actually, yeah, I was too busy. Just that, playing this amazing game. That, I've always think with you know the context of Kane Arrange is what I what I, I personally love doing is you know the now and then. Certainly now wasn't an issue. Kind of just felt like it's part of the game. Um, oh, then now being going back to it, it, it is it's quite a shocker at seeing it, how the performance of that game and they Absolutely. they never fix it for Perfect Dart. We'll maybe do a Perfect Dart show at some point, but you know that in in some regards well, is, if anything it's it's, it's worse, worse because it's worse. Um, yeah. and it's no more highlighted than you know the multiplayer when it's it's you know you know they admit that i think they they bring down the assets of the environments down quite a bit just to make sure that they manage to get the, the mm-hmm. players on screen etc so um and you've got high res mode factored in if, as well if you play the uh, uh, what i will say that um before we you know, move on to us i haven't seen the because we all know that the, the 360 version of golden eye was made um, there's even a videos out there of it being played. Um, having watched those videos, it doesn't. It didn't look like Goldeneye to me. Uh, high res, it was fine. Whatever it, you know, it looks like your modern day kind of just everything looked the way it should do for a 360 port at that point. But just the fact that the game runs so smoothly, it felt like this weird. I don't know. Out of just felt really off, off, off putting, out of place. I don't know. I guess it's the whole perfect dart thing. If you played it at the time versus playing the the Xbox 360 port, I'm sure I would have enjoyed playing it like that and seeing how well it could have run. But equally, it, it kind of playing it now and seeing you know the the limitations and issues, it, it kind of feels more I don't know realistic, dedicated to what that actually a true representation of what that product was, and almost in a, and again, so I, I kind of wish I'm kind of glad it didn't really happen in a horrible way. I was going to say, I wonder if the, um, you know, some of the frame rate issues, uh, or this might just be sort of, you know, uh, m- memories sort of smoothing over, uh, over course, the, uh, yeah. over the experience. But the the point you mentioned, uh, Leon, about the, 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 uh, rumble pack that, uh, that, and I think the kind of the slightly, uh, treacly, uh, movement speed uh, that, that I remember mm. playing, it gave, gave, gave the game weight, I think. It gave it a kind mm-hmm. of physicality, and that that follows through to as you say when you squeeze the trigger and you get the feedback, and hitting the the characters they were you know they obviously they're essentially you know, cuboids now aren't they they're, they but they look solid and they <laughs> felt solid when you hit them they felt solid, um, yeah. and I think that all that just was kind partly of, the sound and yeah partly, yeah I mean the, we we were talking about the heft of of lower frame rates um, recently so I think that's that's pertinent to that. Yeah, and they were, you know, the, the polygons involved in the enemies. You look now, and they they do look uh, they do look quite basic. But and and even back then, I have to say, like the 
there was a lot of laughter at the the like Robbie Coltrane's face being stretched <laughs> over a, <laughs> over a polygon. And it, the, the clenched fists, always, yeah, <laughs> and the clenched fists. It looked particularly comical if you used uh, you know big head mode or Donkey Kong mode or whatever else like that. Uh, even even back then, for for all the stuff that was incredible about the graphics, you know, genuinely eye popping. You know, it looked it looked really high resolution. You know, we know that the, the N64 really struggled with high resolution textures and it couldn't, you know, they tended to not have a, a large number of textures on each cartridge because because of cartridge space. But again, back then, it, it really, I don't know anyone who back then didn't say this game looks amazing. You know, it had, it was also things like, you know, we want to talk about the weapons, but things like the tracer fire, the fact that, it, uh, like the fact that bullets actually left like a, an almost Star Wars-esque um mm-hmm. Uh, a beam like like trace and these are bullets that wouldn't have tracers in real life i don't think um but uh or guns that wouldn't necessarily you wouldn't i don't know if i, I don't know i'm no military I think you expert. only use tracers in like um again i'm no military expert but you use tracers in nighttime scenarios yeah uh, so uh, yeah you know but to see them in daytime it, it was it was all gameplay wasn't it it was to see yeah. where the bullets were coming exactly. from and, and going like yeah yeah, totally, uh, and and I think that added a lot. And um, but yeah, and, I mean, uh, for me, talking about the weapons, which I think uh, sort of in some ways paved the way for Halo, which obviously came four years later. Uh, this was again a big change in the sense that up to this point, we were still only a few years on from Doom, and the sequence tended to be, you know, fist, pistol shotgun machine gun and it was the the old you know Mm. scaling up of weapons up to Mm -hmm. you got the bfg or equivalent whereas this game rather like what halo ended up doing was that weapons had uses had specific places in which uh they were they were more or less advantageous and that combined with the sound effects which you know again are a bit muffled and compressed because they were on the n64 and they were on a cartridge um but there was a lot of sound. There was a lot of intelligent use of weapon sound. And uh, I, uh, the, the silence yeah. pistol noise is so satisfying every time <laughs> I hear it. And it, around that time, you'd hear it in sort of speed garage songs as well. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the <laughs> yeah. game obviously had a lot of influence on, other, you know, other people, other video game developers. But every time I hear it, and even when it's unsilenced, that kind of really powerful noise that is kicking off. Like, mm-hmm. ah, I just, I, I absolutely love the sound effects in Goldeneye. Um, mainly the 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 weapon sounds so they're just they're just mm. absolutely amazing um and the I smashing think, of glass and, and that maybe sort of yeah, yeah, that's the thing that that sells it the, the limited nature of the, the that you know that sound chip i guess is you know that it, it, it's slightly muffled so the fuds where you where you're firing your ak and you're hitting someone it's like you feel like every bullet is having an mm. impact and hitting and then the ones that aren't are doing it as it's ricocheting <laughs> off the walls, we, yeah, you know, love the we all know the sounds. It, um, you know, we've had many discussions. I don't know if if uh, Josh was on the show, he'd be you know, talking about you know Half Life and the way that whole game you know is is so great because all those sounds make sense. To me, it's you know this game is once again that element of the sounds. I can think about the alarms going off. I can think about the ricocheting bullets. I can think about each gun having a slightly different sound and the impact it makes thereafter. Um, yeah, even you know, just the move, you know, the movement and the the footprints of of Bond himself. There's just so many elements that the music, how it plays into you know, dint and dint and that that kind of Bond theme that plays in in there. The bringing up of the watch, so many things. Now I just sit there and go, yeah, those those sounds are so iconic 
that outside of the game, if you just played it to anybody that had been had played Goldeneye and you know back then, would go, yeah, well, that's from Goldeneye, of course. But again, I think so much of this is nostalgia. This this would not be like this is not a game where like I think if you boot up some games from the early eighties now, they like they just sound they still sound incredible. Mm-hmm. Things like Defender. Whereas I think if you played this to somebody who wasn't familiar with Goldeneye, they would just think it sounds kind of weird. Just a gun sound, yeah. <laughs> Uh, even even the rubbish guns in the game, like the, the Club, which is named after Ken Lob, <laughs> yeah, that that gun sounds as bad as it is. It's kind mm. of like a really like floppy, limp kind of kind of noise. Yeah. It's just it, you know that when you're firing it, you shouldn't be firing it, and you just if you know if you could throw it away, chuck it away. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I I, ha- I did find the. You know, and at the time you didn't really think about it, but coming back to it, you, I did find it really overwhelming that you just had a list of guns in your pockets and I, I know the order it goes in so it's like I press 10 times to get to this gun and stuff like that but even then it's kind of like oh man I've got so many guns on me at any one point like it's just they, they also they, they kind of seem a bit pointless at times you're like right I've got an RCP-90 and an AR-33 which one do I go for I don't really know like obviously the RCP-90 has 90 bullets in it and the AR-33 has the zoom and the, the 30 bullets but does it really matter yeah, the probably not might, you, you get for the bullets far too fast and then you're always going back to another gun it was, and was it the first game that did dual wielding because I remember whipping out two RCP 90s and that rumble pack was going mental no it's, it sort of might be but I think again there was the um, there was the gun in again in Duke Nukem which had a sort of oh, yeah. one barrel okay. on either side of the screen and yeah uh, and you also had two pistols as well there was a there was also a dis, was it disruptor on the PS1 I think maybe had something oh, yeah. I'm not 100% sure but yeah um but it yeah again it 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 was just in there it was like there was no you know like Halo 2 came along 7 years later and went dual wielding it's a feature <laughs> like goldeneye 7 years ago was going yep we just did that because James Bond can hold two guns if he wants he can hold two rocket launchers if he really wants two rocket launchers <laughs> no screen but you can do it yeah 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 so you mentioned the music there tony um now i've really mixed feelings about this because it's obviously incredibly nostalgic and there were some there were some pieces for me that i did enjoy but i have to say that i think for me some of it entered the sort of the equivalent of the uncanny valley but for sound so whereas i might enjoy a piece of music on an 8-bit system that was attempting to do guitars and trumpets but just they were just so wrong that they make their own sound this uh a lot of the stuff on the goldeneye soundtrack is so clearly trying to do the the big horn stabs and orchestra blasts and you know guitar tracks of a real soundtrack but because they're being done on the n64's no sound chip um they a lot of that sounds really weedy and pathetic um so i think there's some you know some cool compositions obviously like you mentioned earlier there is that you know that that chord sequence that chord progression of james bond is in there the bass line is in there and it's got that modern spin there's some really cool like I'm, i can't possibly recreate them with my mouth but there's some really cool sounds that i would just forever associate but sometimes the the sort of the midi guitar and stuff is it, it was always a bit it always took the edge off for me, but I know it's got some huge fans and it's great that there is, uh, you can, thanks to Grant Kirkhope, listen to the completely uncompressed music oh, uh, out there. on that's the Just just beautiful, that. Look, I, I only found that this year. I yeah. don't know if that's when he released it, but... I think it is. 
yeah, hearing that, I asked him if he had, had a Perfect Dark uncompressed one, and he said no, um, which is a shame because I do prefer the Perfect Dark soundtrack because I'm not really, I was never a Bond fan, so like, you know, the echoes of Bond in the music didn't really appeal to me. Uh, if I listen back to it, it's purely nostalgia. Like, the music's okay, and it's, it'll only serve a nostalgic trip in my head, like, oh, yeah, that tune of when you're running away from a thing because the, the way the tunes are labelled are like, like you know, surface and then surface x which is a faster version and basically it's you running away or you know escaping from something and perfect dark does the same thing where they label song title x at the end for a faster version um you know it's not to say it's a bad soundtrack uh, it's got some really nice sounds like um i think it's the first time i've actually heard like russian-esque sounds in video games like kind of like an echoey sort of a i don't know i, I can't do it i know the one that was the one i was trying to it's like yeah. if you had like a ceramic gong and you you yeah. slapped it and it, it kind you of echoed around like a <laughs> around knows the snowy what you're about. yeah <laughs> definitely but yeah um yeah. yeah it's got some nice touches uh the music and I'll, again i'll only listen to it purely for nostalgia uh, the, yeah the Not nostalgia trip for me is and i think for most people the opening you know credits which you know <laughs> are fantastic and I said there's that incidental kind of you're just wandering around the base. Din, 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 din. I can't do it, but it's um, yeah, it's it's interesting going back to it that I think like most of these things, there's a lot of tracks which are fairly, you know, so so they just they just work within the environment they're in. But it does have the benefit of having you know a couple of absolute standout classic tracks mm. that people will just you know gravitate to and and just remember the game via. And I think you know. The best games have that just a, a theme which it can you know pull upon and people remembering too. And usually for me, I actually listened through it all at work today while I was um, I was reading okay. some uh, some stuff. And uh, I, yeah, I was. I mean, I'm not usually a big fan of of game soundtracks, and there was obviously a, a, a very real nostalgia trip listening back to it. But my, I think my my lasting impression was just the um, uh, I, I thought the kind of inventiveness with which they they kind of they clearly riffed on the main bond theme and woven it throughout the soundtrack but i don't think there was there was much sense of kind of repetition i thought each you know each track felt like its own thing but there were echoes there were callbacks to you know what you would familiar uh, what you would relate to bond what you were familiar with from from the movies so i thought you know i thought it was a yeah it was it was good to listen back to it i should do more of that at work i think oh absolutely uh, we have a podcast you know oh i've heard that right? yeah yeah. Oh, subscribe review and rate good call uh so i think it's uh it's to high time we talked a little bit more about the multiplayer so uh obviously even our youngest uh listeners will know that of course this was all uh local multiplayer split screen there were no uh link up cables or or anything like that certainly no internet uh, I, I did try and separate my friends from looking at my screen with a cardboard y- divider. Y- yes, this was this was a bit of a trend. I remember magazines including instructions as to how to uh, yeah mask off your bits of the screen to other people. So how did that go for you? T- terribly. It, it, it only f- made everyone more angry. Um, there yeah. was an incident with a LucasAid bottle, which was mm. glass at the time. So <sighs> yeah, uh, you know, I'll leave it at that. But yeah, um, yeah, it didn't help. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, so part of playing split screen multiplayer uh, in a first person game like this back in the day was screen watching or whatever you call it. I don't know. I think screen looking. I'm sure there's some cool screen cheat. There's a game screen. on Steam called Screen Cheat and right. it, everyone's invisible and you have to look at each other's screens to find out where they are and kill them. Right. So I think it's called screen cheating. That'll it's do. part of the game. 
it is part of the game. You can you can you can try and work around it. Um, the, fortunately, what I found is when going back to this recently uh, was exactly what I found in nineteen ninety seven to nineteen ninety nine or whenever I stopped playing it um, was that because the textures are so repetitive and mm. blurry and confusing that I could never really tell where anyone was anyway. So <laughs> it's uh, put it down. The, everyone's on the, an equal playing field. Like you can see their screen, they can see your screen. If you know the levels well enough, then you know where they are. But equally, they know where you are. So yeah. it's it. I don't know. It, I nev- it never bothered me at the time. I, I mean, I played a lot of it and very much enjoyed it. Not in any kind of high kind of capacity. Just you know, just fun kick about playing Golden Nine and en- enjoying it to that point. The fact that I could see their screen just meant that you know, I knew where they were. But equally, it, it hmm. runs both both the same now. Darren, clearly, you were were not happy with that situation. So things have obviously got a bit I, more competitive. I, I wasn't the attacker. I was more a, a, a surveyor of the attack um, with the with the, the, the glass. Oh, bottle. I like that. Oh, that's, that's cool. No, no, that's cool. I like that analogy. It's interesting. We've all got one because, well, I don't know about Brian, but we also had a uh, an N64 yanked on the floor while playing GoldenEye <laughs> moment uh, that meant that every time I booted up GoldenEye after that point, there was a kind of weird screen glitch on the cartridge. I guess one of the prongs had got bent. I mean, it could have been much, much worse. The N64 was fine and, and the game was ultimately fine, but it always, every time I turned it on after that, there was a kind of wavy line on the screen uh, when I turned it on. So, and that was just... From people getting overexcited and yanking the uh, yanking the controller, um, you know, I can even remember, you know, this was as I say for a good two year period that we used to play this. I remember the exact type of snacks we used to have. <laughs> uh, we always used to have these uh, these prawn cocktail. Uh, they were made by a company called Red Mill, who no longer exists. They got absorbed. They were these ridiculously overly strong, chemically absolutely nothing good in the whatsoever sort of corn snacks, like prawn cocktail, monster munch, but not that high quality. We devoured uh, cases, caseloads of those. We had um, we had uh, really uh, those really crappy uh, Bobby's chocolate chip cupcakes from the corner <laughs> shop it was you know it was like this it was a routine and a ritual and it yeah. was just uh it but, was just so much fun so, so, that's so weird you say that because mine was or ours was the maverick bar that i don't think they make <laughs> anymore um lemon fanta <laughs> and chewing gum <laughs> that's so weird wow but, i think we used to actually drink a bit but i was i was 25 yeah, at this point so. yeah but, but back to your point darren you know being the attacker versus the kind of reaction to it that fascinates me because that's still something I see happen in, in modern day gaming, you know, a bit with just one screen and kind of viewing the environment what's going around you. But I know exactly what you mean there. This is the same thing I used to do. I used to let people have their, you know, their one-on-one fights and then just mm. come in and mop up a bit, you know, because at that point, you know, either their, their shield, well, their shield, their, yeah, I get that armor padding would be down. Kill stealing, yeah, you mean. Just, and like that happens today, yeah. but being able to see somebody else's screen and seeing the exact like how much health they have knowing where they are on the level and then actually going hunting them and then knowing and that you're hunting them sitting next to and you and then you're doing this kind of benny hill then running around and if you got good enough that game you could you you'd sense what was happening by just kind of glancing down you could then re kind of camp yourself and actually if you got a good you know maybe you were the golden gun but maybe not but you could get yourself in this position where you know, you were hard to hit and they would be coming for the door. You just pump, you know, them for the lead and, and get the kill. And, you know, that is, you know, as... You can shoot them through the door, as, of As fun yeah, now yeah, as a, an experience, you know, now as in playing online multiplayer as it was back then, because then you could just look and then go, yeah, I got, I know what you were trying to do. I got the one up on you. Yeah, multiplayer this game is, is best. 
this is why we played on a, a setting that no one really plays. It's called minus 10. If you go to the health options, mm. you can flick it down to minus 10. Now, it's almost licensed to kill, but if you get shot with a pistol, you can take two bullets. But the difference here between minus 10 health and license to kill is that body armor actually benefits the player. So if you're a good player and you find the body armor, you can then take three or four hits. So, you know, the, there's a real balance and kind of a feverish, uh, like a frantic nature of everyone running for the body armor because they know that if they get that, they've got the reward of, you know, an extra two or three bullets. Um, yeah, I mean, everyone... And not, not everyone. A lot of people say license to kill was the way forward, but that didn't count for any body armor ben- benefits or you know any kind of minutia of the guns. Whereas minus ten was like if you got a hit with an AR thirty three, you were going down no matter what without body armor. But if you took a PPK to the leg, you you could run off and you know hide in the toilets and <laughs> hold the right shoulder button and get back in the vents. That's if pretty you cool. To. Yeah, they, yeah, there were and and they include a good number of uh, modes and variants. Again, especially considering this was all put together in the last couple of months. Yeah. Um, but I think what I did want to say was as much as, you know, absolutely have all these fond memories from 18, 16 to 18 years ago of that time in my life playing this game. I have been back to it a few times multiplayer. One time was at the Game On exhibition in 2007 at the Science Museum in London. And I was there with uh, one of my old GoldenEye friends and uh, and we tried to play it and it didn't really stick. And I'm not going to say I didn't have fun playing it at yours, Darren, with, with you know, with some good friends, colleagues of podcast. But that the the combination of the control method, including I'm not just including the uh, I'm not just talking about the analog stick plus C buttons. I'm also talking about the really alien thing now, which is the you know it got carried forward into time splitters as well, which is the holding down the shoulder button to aim and all that sort of thing. Um, combined with the textures, combined with the with everything, the way it looked, uh, I, I found it incredibly difficult to actually enjoy as a video game. I enjoyed it as an experience and as a nostalgic thing, but it's you know I I, I couldn't I don't think it, like there are some games when we've talked about them things like Super Monkey Ball. Uh, if we'd done a Bomberman show, I would say the same thing. You know, crack those games out and you'll have as good a time as you ever would have done playing those games, but. Not Goldeneye, not for me. To be fair, I found it quite frustrating at the time when I was playing my friend Pete, who was like a ninja with proximity mines, and there'd be mm-hmm. three of us versus him, and we would never be able to find the bastard. <laughs> he was always sneaking around, dropping those things all over There's the place. Uh, he yeah. was uh, he was an uh, absolute genius at multiplayer in that game. But um, proximity I, mines were a genius inclusion. Yeah, yeah, it was mm-hmm. great. I mean, I, I actually, I mean, I, my love for the multiplayer and the was so great that I actually once tried to rope my mum into playing it with me. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that makes me um, like a hero for trying to convert people to video games or a loser, but uh, yeah, she was rubbish at it. She just, um, it was, you wasn't stared able, at the ceiling. You couldn't tell where she was cause she was just looking at the wall. Um, yeah, so in that way, it was quite, it was a good tactic. It's pretty but, unforgiving uh, though. It's, it you was, can die yeah. a lot. I, I mean, I know Darren was always probably going to be better than any of us, but you know, in that gaming session, you know, we, I think we held our own, but you know, You'd find huge sections where you'd be on a, you know, a, a, well, Darren would be on a kill streak and we would be on a death streak. And, yeah, I, I remember that happening fairly frequently in my own, you know, my own time of the game to the point, almost like Brian was saying, that you'd, you'd end up forming a posse to hunt down the other player to at least bring the score. <laughs> somewhere in a region where somebody might win other than the one guy that got really good at it. But that's all part of its charm. But like you said, Leon, I, I found it and it, uh, quite a hard experience to go back to it's it's not something mm-hmm. i think 
you can i'm not saying you can't enjoy it anymore um but you know games have, have obviously progressed the, you know the, the visual quality the fidelity of the game of the game you know, it's probably it's it's the bit that holds holds up the worst out of all the package because it's trying to do so much in four player um multiplayer so yeah it's it's got its issues now but that doesn't take anything away from how good it was back then no yeah. absolutely it was absolutely you know a life changer for me three other people uh, playing this all the time it was it was incredible but yeah playing it recently it's not fun for people because people haven't played it in such a long time whereas i have so mm-hmm. i'm just whizzing around you know doing the circle strafing and you know making bond go at two times speed because you can do that <laughs> so i'm just picking people off left right and center anyway so i'm just like yeah yeah this game it you know if they did a, an Xbox Live version, if it actually came out, that version, they'd have to change the multiplayer because it's so bare bones. And that is because it was a late inclusion. And I'm surprised they got so much in there at the same time of it feeling really bare bones. But, you know, it was amazing. Now, you know, there's, there's, there, there are better multiplayer experiences and that's understandable. Yeah. Uh, yes. And of course, there's a whole there's a there's an extra suite of uh, playable characters that you could unlock. Um, which was again seemed quite a remarkable thing to have crammed on the cart. Although I suppose a lot of them are models from the single player game anyway, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, there it was, was a button prompt. Few... Yeah, yeah. What was that? It was a button prompt that you could type in, so it unlocked a wealth of characters that you, you yeah. saw but you never touched before. What the hell was mm. that thing you you tweeted the other, out the other day? Where if you if you pushed a cartridge slightly at a weird <laughs> angle, that you would completely affect the gaming world or the characters. So that, that's in the game. common for. That's common for all N64 games. It's called the, the cartridge tilt, where if you tilt the left-hand side of the cartridge, you can manipulate Zelda or Clear of Time by skipping various geometries. In GoldenEye, it makes the models flip upside down and inside out and do all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, yeah, just type it in on Google. It is mental. And perhaps most famously of all, uh, the one element of uh, multiplayer that was controversial, to say the least, was the inclusion, not the, well, not necessarily the inclusion of the character Oddjob, uh, who in the films was a, a you know played by a five foot ten my namesake uh, yeah. Uh, yeah your namesake five foot ten inch man um, but in the game for some reason I don't know whether the developers confused him with the three foot ten uh, character knickknack uh, but he's tiny he's he's minuscule and so famously uh, incredibly hard target to hit and aim at uh, so especially often when he's bad. crouching if you yeah. if you if you had an ob job player who was crouching <laughs> you just unplug his controller it's like mate sort it out yeah. so do you think that was a, an error was, confusing yeah. ob job with nick martin hollis admitted himself he, he said it was a, a a genuine error well i don't mean mixing him with nick that but actually putting him on that yeah. high they they just isn't an oversight that you know sure if they could patch it now they would but yeah. his his summarization of that is if someone's playing ob job you should probably punch him in the arm um, you know, it's local multiplayer, so you know, deal, deal with it amongst yourselves. It's a social issue, yeah, it's uh, funny. Uh, is what he said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll be hearing more on that later. Uh, a few specific uh, correspondences uh, regarding the multiplayer that I wanted to share from our forum. This is from Alex Maskill, who says, I used to play this all the time with my cousins in paintball mode. Mine was a PlayStation house, and so we had to use their N64. Four players on one screen, and this was back when I barely had the cognitive and mental dexterity to play proper video games, so they always took me out quickly. But the range of environments and the fidelity of the graphics bowled me over. 
It was the first time I saw a game genuinely giving a decent approximation of the experiences of the protagonist of the film faced. The game strikes me as the kind of thing that would be incredibly hard to go back to, given how much the shooter genre has improved. Rambling Hamster doesn't ramble too much, but says, he or she says, this was the go-to game on my N64 in multiplayer between February of 98 until Perfect Dark was released in 2000. The game saw me through much of my free periods in sixth form, hooking up a TV and pooling controllers to get a four-player match up and running, and many a Friday evening spent playing License to Kill into the early hours of the morning. Although, aside from Oddjob, there was little difference between the multiplayer characters, one friend I remember selected a red-jumpered nobody taken from the single-player streets level on one occasion, dubbing him Psycho Civilian, won the round and could not be persuaded to part from him henceforth, however irrational it seemed. Is the streets level the one with the tank? Mm-hmm. Yep, it is rubbish. Mm-hmm. The tank level was was always uh, my least favourite. Yeah, speaking uh, of yeah. least favourite levels, and yeah. you know, runway also had a tank, but you you do need to get in it to shoot the guns out on harder difficulties. But again, like the controls for that were just awful. Yeah, and that was based on a you know the kind of showpiece sequence from from the from the movie, so they probably were under a certain amount of. Uh, pressure to include it and it probably seemed like a great idea because and you know frankly they weren't the first and they weren't the last to cram in uh, substandard vehicular levels <laughs> in, a, in an action game Hunter30 who also posted at canarince.com slash forum says my early experiences with Goldeneye are probably slightly different to most I never owned an N64 myself but there was one in my house at the boarding school that I attended Morning Chapel, Double Latin, and then Death by RCP90. Take that, Tom Brown. Public school cliches aside, this was a formidable proving ground in the dark arts and twitch skills of the split-screen multiplayer shoot-em-up. In the first few months after our housemaster returned from town with a box bearing Pierce Brosnan's steely-eyed visage, there were rarely fewer than 15 11- to 14-year-old boys crowded around the gaming TV. Those not playing would eagerly await their turn, eyes fixated on the action unfolding before them. One of the most challenging aspects of playing in this environment was training oneself not to swear instinctively after being caught out by a particularly devious remote mine, lest one of the house tutors happen to be wandering by. Playing as odd job guaranteed social pariah status for at least the rest of the afternoon. Sometimes it was worth it. Curiously, I never got—I never played the single-player mode. This was a privilege preser- uh, reserved only for the oldest year group in our house. The rest of us watching on enviously at what suddenly, without the split screen, seemed to be an incredibly large screen. Goldeneye as expression of institutional hierarchy. I know you chaps are thorough, but I suspect even you might not have covered that particular angle. My favourite memory of Goldeneye, though, was when one of my mates from home was given the game by his parents. He and two other friends had been playing it together for a few weeks That when, having broken up for the school holidays, I was invited round to his house to get in on the action. With abilities honed in the fiercely competitive environment of school, where I was, at best, average, I racked up more kills than Schwarzenegger in Commando. I don't think I lost a game that summer. Before I start to sound too arrogant, I should add that since those halcyon days, I've consistently been the worst out of this same group of friends at a succession of shooters from Perfect Dark to Halo. That's why this uh, particular memory is so special. It was a glorious brief period when I reigned supreme. Thanks, Hunter. That's a lovely post. And like any uh, game of the era, uh, particularly N64 cartridges seem to have been blown apart by a rabid community. Um, This game has a load of uh, little trinkets, treats, 
and uh, other Easter eggs squirreled away. What, what are some of the highlights in that department, Darren? Um, the flasks in facility on the vents in the in the blue greenish corridor blew me away when I saw it. I was just looking up there, Look, that's, sort of, uh, like a chemistry set. Yeah, yeah. It, you mm. know, you see them on the tables in the in the rooms, but I saw it on a vent, just all of my own accord, just looking around, like, what's up there? Mm. Why the why? And I I was convinced that there was a method of shooting them that would unlock a secret area, kind mm. of like how Fez is like, you know, the <laughs> the mystery of brute force in a puzzle and stuff like that. Um, the silo level, you can open the silo, which is presumably not an Easter egg, but more of a hangover from the beta days where you could open the silo and launch a missile. But if you were to get Urumov's, Umarov's case and go back to one of the silos and look up, you can open the doors and you can see outside. Um, there, there's loads of stuff. like, And it's probably not even Easter eggs. It's probably just beta stuff that hangs over. Um, but it's interesting to me because... I'm a weirdo. But yeah, like there's Donkey Kong's face in the damn wall. Yes. It could just be coincidence, but it looks like Donkey Kong. You know, and there's, you know, there's, there's loads of stuff, man. It, but the, the, the fight, the line between Easter egg and beta hangover kind of blurs for me. Cause like, it's all an Easter egg. It's like, Oh my God, there's a hidden grenade skin. Oh my God. Oh. It does nothing. It does nothing in the real world. But for me, like yeah. my head explodes in, in poor frame rate. Is the famous one probably the the mysterious uh, island? I would suggest. Yeah, you know, you you zoom over to the the other end of the dam and you see a, a again a beta hangover where you would get in a little green boat and chug your way over to this thing where a, 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 an island with a turret and a tower and a guy would presumably be uh, he used to be patrolling around there and at the top there was meant to be the the gun that he uses to latch himself to the floor at the bottom of the dam, because that was meant to be a part of the game where you would bun- you would bungee off and you would latch yourself onto mm. a panel at the bottom. So it was meant to be more interactive than what it wasn't. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, what that it ended up being. <laughs> so, yeah, again, like if you go to the cutting room floor website and type in GoldenEye, you can see a whole heap of stuff where you were meant to be doing more than what you didn't. From the community, uh, com slash forum, we have some more thoughts uh, and opinions Glenn Watts says, I bought it at launch and thought it was kind of meh. At the time, I was heavily into playing Quake 2, Capture the Flag at work, and Goldeneye felt too slow, too fiddly to control, and far too frustrating. I really didn't enjoy it at all. I don't think I enjoyed any FPS on console until the twin-stick control method came along. Prior to that, I was a diehard mouse and keyboard-only kind of player. I also don't think it's aged very well, but that's almost universal with N64 games, unfortunately. I don't deny its importance, though. It showed first-person shooters could be done on console, which was something most people thought impossible, although I still kind of like Exhumed, which was earlier. I just didn't like it. Fair enough, Glenn. The Rambling Hamster again says, The single player really drew me into an FPS for the first time, unlike Doom, whose fantastical setting had left me cold. Once past the first damn level, I realised that I could choose to kill with stealth to improve my chances of success, that guards would react depending on where you shot them, that a lot could be shot off to gain access to a new area. Following these revelations, I was completely immersed and eager to play through the whole experience. Over a four-month period, I worked through all three difficulties over the 20 levels available and then scaled the next challenge by besting some insane times to unlock the rare cheat codes. Obtaining invincibility on facility in less than two minutes, five seconds on double O agent was particularly fiendish as mission critical Dr. Doak turned up in a number of different locations and could make meeting the time limit impossible and cued much swearing. Still owning my N64 today, going back to Goldeneye, while noting the graphical appeal has faded with the passing of time, I find from an audio perspective that it still impresses me, which is remarkable given the N64's notable shortcomings during that uh, during the era in that particular department. 
Each level has a tune with a different spin on Monty Norman's classic theme, which does the job of differentiating each mission fantastically well. Rare even made pausing the game mid-mission an event, and this triggered the Q-Watch face graphic uh, alongside memorable background music. I'd be humming away to that pause screen for days at a time. You can even buy a cheap version of the watch for yourself, apparently, so I don't think it was just me who recalls this specific dimension of the game fondly. Aside from the positives, I can see that there are some very weak single-player levels, which even at the time felt like low points such as streets and depot. Perhaps in an attempt to follow the story arc of the film, Rare tried to persevere with levels that should have been left on the cutting room floor, but it's easy to appreciate how driving a tank with a city at your mercy must have seemed like such a great idea in brainstorming sessions. In reality, it was a dull level, with the minor exception of running over enemy soldiers whose screams gave it some small merit. (laughs) The NPC AI will not be winning any awards today either, and I get cold chills at the memory of your sidekick Natalia walking in front of pitch battles and ending up dead time and again with her apparent ignorance of the dangers of flying lead. I do think that this game deserves the classic status that it's given. Goldeneye showed that the FPS could sell on consoles before Halo, and it excelled in both single and multiplayer. So uh, the hamster there talks a little about the uh, the, the difficulty level and, and scaling up, and this is something... Mm. I mean, I, I did to a point. I don't think I ever got right to having done everything, um, but I certainly appreciated, you know, the differences. Um, <clears throat> I think there were a couple of levels that I didn't manage to do on the hardest setting, but uh, this is something yeah, it's, that, it's, that both you and uh, Brian spent some time with, Darren. Yeah, I've, I've still got my 007 file on my N64, so... Um um, you know, so when you finish all the challenges, you know, on double O agent, um, you know, and special agent and agent, uh, or was it secret agent? I can't really remember. But yeah, you you are given your your folder on the front end is labelled double O seven, and if I was to ever lose that, I would. I I don't know what I'd do. <laughs> I'd probably actually feel a massive weight of release off my shoulders because I every time I turn it on, I'm like, don't be lost, don't be lost. But yeah, the challenges that lay within the levels they evolve the harder they get so if dam is a prime example of this so dam level one is just get to the end and jump off but then by double o agent you're going underneath and back on yourself to erase some data on a computer which is guarded by at least 25 extra guards that you wouldn't even seen before um and you know these challenges get harder and more more challenging the, the further you get on and by about depot is when it really kind of starts cranking up so you start, you play depot, which is one before train, because it's in a train depot, and uh, yeah, you, you you'll suddenly realise that the challenges are getting ridiculous. You you'll be sent into areas that have mounted miniguns that will automatically fire you because they got cameras on, and you'd never seen them before. Um, you know, and it was just it was it was more than just you taking more hit points and they them having more hit points. You know, like difficulty up to that point for me was just like, oh my gun doesn't seem to hurt them as much as it did, and I'm taking more damage. It seemed like no matter what difficulty you're playing on, Agent, Secret, or Double O, your headshots counted, so it really rewarded player you know, precision. Um, it was all down to your skill. And, you know, so, again, he mentions the random number generator of Dr. Uh, you know, Dr. David Doak being a bit of a pain, and that, that is true for some of the levels. You know, you, you can win or lose based on how the dice is rolled in some levels, and it's, it's pretty um, unforgiving. Um, the complex level being one in particular when the guy smashed the glass when Natalia's programming on the computer. Mm. If they can smash glass at random points, and that's fine. But when you've spent so many 
hours getting to a point where you're at that stage of the game, it feels really unforgiving at times. It, it kind of just feels like, oh, oh, you know, we've robbed the dice. It's a six. Now you get the thing. So yeah, um, I kind of wish there was more structure to it. And I didn't really notice that back in the day, but now it's kind of like, if you're going to be this hard, it needs to have a bit more structure. Yeah, I, I mean, I lost my save when I traded in my old uh, N64, so maybe that's where the feelings of guilt um, and remorse come in. But uh, I certainly couldn't go back and do do that, any of that uh, again now. Um, but I, no, so, it's really but, hard. Yeah, but when you know that that first time you complete the game, then you go back and replay the levels again, and you bump up the difficulty, and you have different things to do, and it opens up different areas of of the levels, and it just I it's something that i that i i mean i might not have seen it in modern games but it's just something that isn't as you know it doesn't it's a design idea and a, a and a concept that doesn't seem to have been picked up and developed beyond so say in you know obviously if you're playing an open world rpg you get the different options the different objectives and the different orders you can complete them in um but that's not the same it's not the same essentially making three games in one which is what they did i I felt um and it was just you know it's it's an idea perhaps it's lost to time but it was it was a genius idea and it just was the it gave me a reason i'm not one that often replays games uh there's probably three or four that i will go back to again and again but the fact that gold and i you know prompted me to go back through it three times um and then some you know it was just you know it speaks to the sort of the testament of as a testament to the decisions that they that they that they put into the game fantastic stuff just a couple more sean s thomas says goldeneye will always be a special game for me it can it coincided with my first year at uni and unlike many people who spent those formative years in a drug-fueled orgy i spent them making some great friends and playing one hell of a lot of local multiplayer goldeneye was always the Game of choice in uni halls, a hysterical way to pass several hours. We'd tailor the game to the group's skill level with several of the poorer players loving proximity mines, using license to kill one-shot deaths to level the field, or letting the worst player from the uh, previous round be Objob or Siberian Special Forces on the snow map. Many titles seemingly had these games within games back in the day, and that's what I most loved about GoldenEye. Despite pumping hundreds of hours into it, it always threw up something hilarious and unexpected. That's partly down to Rare being a developer who likes to have fun via things like slapper mode and silly characters, but also down to a lot of flaws within the engine such as guns poking through doors and badly animated soldiers sliding on one knee down air vents. And that's why I think it should be left in the past. GoldenEye hadn't had its quirks or silliness playtested out of it, but nowadays it would. I love the reboot on Wii and think it nailed a great deal of what made this game so good. But take away the friends, eccentricities and in truth downright bugginess and you have a title that blew open a genre but has been left behind by uh, its successors. I enjoyed the single player campaign one hell of a lot too, mind. I pumped hours into completing these levels in multiple ways on varying difficulties. Loving how that first level would take me half an hour to clear on the first go but eventually seeing me conquer it in 50 seconds. I never did manage to unlock that very last level, alas, despite years of trying, but it was a blast, made all the better by the N64 controller, which felt made for it. I've tried to recreate those years of mayhem since, but I've always found that people have moved on. The slowdown is awful. The non-gamers who joined in the fun at uni would far prefer to pick up something instinctive like Wii Sports or Mario Chase. And if it wasn't a special game for you at the time, it won't be now. But for those of us who got to enjoy it with friends at the time... It'll remain an all-time great. Thank you, Sean. 
And finally we go to the beard of the Dom, also known as Rich. I'm a huge James Bond fan, and GoldenEye is one of my favourite Bond films, so the news of a game certainly had me excited. I didn't have an N64 in 1997. I'd only rented one at launch, so I knew what I wanted for Christmas. I asked for an N64 and GoldenEye. I should drop in at this point that my 18th birthday was December the 30th. Christmas Day 1997 arrives, and I look through my presents and find the game-shaped present and excitedly open it to reveal, yes, GoldenEye 64. I then look for the N64 itself, barely containing my excitement, but there was no sign of it. Was my mum saving it for a grand entrance? No! Oh, uh, you're getting your N64 for your birthday. It's not here. I spent that Christmas day reading the instruction booklet (laughs) in a bad mood while setting up my new pager. So, hooray, my birthday arrives. I had, of course, planned a day full of drinking with all my friends, but arranged not to meet them until 1pm at the earliest. I would get my N64 and finally get to play Goldeneye. Again, by now, I had read the instructions from cover to cover. In comes mum. Oh, we don't have it. You're getting it at your party tonight. So I went out and got very drunk that day, as you do, and vaguely remember opening up my N64, and I imagine doing a drunken rendition of the N64 kit at that point. So finally I got to play Goldeneye. From entering through the vent, I knew I was playing something special. I whizzed through all the levels on easy, only to want to retry them on harder difficulties, which I did. Graphically at the time, it looked great too, and it was very close to the film. The soundtrack was superb as well, and great sound effects. One of my biggest gaming regrets is not managing to unlock that last level. I must have attempted to complete the one missing level on 00 Agent hundreds of times, but could not do it. I lived at the time about 100 metres from my school, so pretty much every free period, five days a week for two years, was spent in my front room playing Goldeneye with the same four friends. We must have played thousands of hours. I was a dab hand, so it tended to be three versus me, which was good fun. Our favourite modes were the hilarious big heads with hands only and one hit kills. Maps were always facility and temple. No multiplayer gaming has ever felt as good as this. It was for a time the perfect game. Laying remote minds and watching your friend's screen waiting for them to walk past was hilarious as one person saw you with your watch ready and knew they were going to die soon. I was lucky enough to go to a retro event recently in Leeds and they had an N64 set up with Goldeneye. In the game I played I won and memories came flooding back. I knew exactly where to find the body armour. Would I recommend someone play it now? No, I wouldn't. It's simply not aged well. It is number two in my favourite games of all time for a reason, though. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) Right, we're going to have to absolutely rattle through these three-word reviews at a pace. Okay, David Merritt says, unplayable without nostalgia. (laughs) Daniel Davis says, really crappy controls. Glenn Watts, important but dated. Eric Jones, fun back then. Rich says, Natalia is annoying. Mm -hmm. Louis Philotrol says, my first stealth. Catatonic Gnarly, books shouldn't explode. T-Jesus, death by vent. SMD says, golden gun temple. Ben Parry says, for England, James. Sean S. Thomas says, licensed to kill. Hands in the jam, that amazing soundtrack. Michael Edward, ultimate game changer. Zach Singer, unforgettable multiplayer fun. Ian Martland, split screen heaven. Ryan Merrick, odd job is short. Alan Wilkinson says, odd job is cheating. <laughs> Alex 79 UK, Connor Roddy and Rich Woodward said, no odd job allowed. Yeah, they weren't even the only ones, but uh, <laughs> yeah, there were a lot. 
Right. Super brief summaries um, and uh, the, that crucial. Would you recommend people play it now? And you would have to get an N64 or a PC emulator, I suppose. But uh, Tony. Uh, Golden Knight is very much a game of its time. Um, you look at some of the stuff, the being shot, the, the characters completely overreact. The sounds probably a bit too dramatic, etc. Um but it's not about that. It's this to me is a nostalgia trip. Um, quite often I play games and I want to talk about how they play now versus how they were back then. This one I can't separate those two. My memories of playing GoldenEye are so personal and so tight, and it to me it changed the way you know my understanding of first-person shooters and the genre I would fall in love with for many many years thereafter. Um, I went back to it, and sure the frame rate is pretty dire now the the multiplayer isn't anywhere near as fun as i remember it being and certainly the later half of the game is not as as tight as the first half of the game but quite frankly none of that means anything to me i adored goldeneye back then it's not the the masterpiece you know of modern presentation but i didn't expect it to be i enjoyed my time with it should you play it now if you've never played it before yeah it's your gaming heritage get on that understand it if you listen to Kamen Rince I'm sure you understand that not everything can be as silky smooth as the things you play now so I think it's a really important game that even yeah Waltz and All should be enjoyed or should be at least experienced by new gamers alike because this is the foundation of some of our most important gaming heritage so yes well said Tony and while I fundamentally agree with all that you said I don't recommend that people play GoldenEye 007 now um, because I think I don't think it would do it any justice. I think it's worth looking at, definitely look at some footage and, and delve into the history and understand uh, what it what it's, what it's brought to the, the console first-person shooter party. But, um, yeah, I think you might be able to get an idea of, of, sort of how much you might enjoy it by playing some Perfect Dark on 360 or Xbox One, although obviously it is a different game. Um but yes, uh, nothing takes away the incredibly fond memories of the the few years that I spent with this and my friends playing it, both uh, single and multiplayer. I think back then I'd have thought this would go down as one of my all-time favourite games, but I don't think I could honestly say that now. But um, but yeah, uh, it's yeah we've said all we need. I've said all I need to say. Brian, I think the two of you have summed up my feelings on it uh, pretty well. Actually, I mean it's it's. I, like Julian I think it would have been one of my favourite games of all time had I not gone to play it again a year ago and um, I suppose realised how rubbish I was at it now how um, ropey some of the uh, technical details of it are but there is still that little corner of my brain that remembers lunchtimes around my friend Terry's house you know sitting there blasting through uh, multiplayer with a couple of friends it's just it was it was a game of its time um and it for me was for a very long time that and mario 64 and mario kart were were video games that was all that video games is were and needed to be uh so no it's not a game that you could play now and have that sort of feeling towards um but as as a game that formed my love of video games uh, it's irreplaceable lovely stuff thanks brian let's conclude with the the man who had his life changed by this game, Darren? Yeah, it's it's hard for me to recommend GoldenEye 007 as an enjoyable experience, partly because it has completely changed who I am. Like, the way I look at GoldenEye is more than just a video game. It's it's kind of, you know, a, a chapter in my life. It's 
but if you know if you were to look at it as an a- academic point of view it's really interesting to go back and see how this team was setting out to make a first person shooter different from you know the dooms and the quakes it, it really it does have a different structure and you know we spoke about it earlier on um but would i recommend playing it now as a new person to the game again purely as a this is how they we this is how they did it back in 97 uh you know i love it i can't really recommend it as an as an enjoyable experience from start to finish now no it's just there's too many technical issues it's just it's just unfair it's just unbalanced and it's a bit yeah it's just a bit ropey now it's just it hurts me to mm-hmm. say but that's the way i feel yeah absolutely well said and uh yeah incredible uh work at being trying to be objective there about something which is obviously so personal anyway uh that's kind of that's partly what it's all about uh this has been uh, volume four of cane and rinse um thanks to everyone who's joined us during this volume it's uh, been by far our biggest uh yet thanks uh, in no small part to uh vice and uh, the av club for printing articles that featured us thanks to the authors of those um and we'll see you in about a month's time so it remains for me Liam, to thank brian darren and tony and to tell you that next time in volume 5 issue 201 we begin our biggest quest yet the entire the legend of zelda series starting with the 1986 nes original 